welcome to Plenary Session. I'm your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. I'm a practicing hematologist-oncologist, and I'm Associate Professor of Medicine. I'm interested in issues at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy, and that's what you're going to get on this podcast. Welcome to Season 2. This week on Plenary Session, I'm back at End of Day's Bunker, and we have a great show for you. We're going to start things off with a classical hematology chat, and we're going to be talking about all things anticoagulation and COVID. You won't want to miss this discussion. And then I'm joined by Dr. Walid Jalad, who's going to be talking to us about all of the drugs that are coming down the pipeline for COVID-19. This episode is COVID-19 with a touch of classical hematology, because you know I love classical hematology. And we'll be back in the future with what I like to think most about oncology and cancer medicine. So stay tuned. But first, a thanks. I want to thank those of you who've gone online and support this podcast on Patreon.com. Patreon subscribers get access to the slides from lectures I give on Plenary Session. I also want to thank the hundreds of you who've gone to the iTunes store and reviewed this podcast. We appreciate that feedback. I also want to thank the dozens of you who've written reviews. A written review goes a long way. What can Plenary Session do for you? Email us your questions at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Tweet to us at plenary underscore session. Let us know what you like about the podcast and let us know what you don't like. This year on season two, we're going to incorporate some new elements in the podcast and we want to know your feedback on them. I'm back in plenary session, end of day's bunker, joined via Google Meetup uh, with Dr. Sven Olson and Dr. Joe Schatzel, and this is a classical hematology chat. So Sven, Joe, it's good to see you both. Vinay, we've, we've missed you in Oregon. Oh, I see. Yes, I see. I see that um, my absence has been noted these days. It's been noted. This is true. We got a lot of... Listeners will be pleased to see that despite us, the informality of this meeting, we're all wearing three-piece suits. <laughs> That's right. All, all appropriately coat. dressed. Yes. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so how are things back, uh, back in Oregon? Uh, the well, weather things have started to things have started to open back up uh, slowly but surely. Um, I don't know about I don't know about the Bay Area, but some shops and restaurants and stuff have started to kind of open their doors. So yeah, uh, it remains to be seen whether that's good or not. Yeah, what do you say, well, Joe? Well, the inc- the incidence of COVID was very low in Oregon, mm-hmm. so we were lucky. So our hospital system never really surged, and if anything, our healthcare system is kind of um, running at uh, nowhere near capacity. So the workload is a little lighter. And uh, the weather is gorgeous, so I've been jogging a lot <laughs> and doing a lot of clinic visits from from my kitchen. I see, I see. Yeah, Oregon, everything shut down. Everything was yeah. wide open. The hospital was totally open, and uh, yeah. yeah. So someday, someone will have to take stock of the net health impact in Oregon. I'm not sure. Well, we've had um, at OHSU. I can tell you, we've had 217 positive cases. That's a relatively small number. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Our institution. And the maximum hospitalization was like, what, 16, 17, 18 kind of range. Sounds about yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. And about uh, maybe 50, I think 50, 50 staff members who have tested positive as well. So but the denominator was like, how low. many staff members got tested? It was like five grand or something crazy, right? 
Uh, it was about four grand based on four what I'm grand. looking at the latest numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So so that's our state. So certainly didn't get the didn't get the worst of it. All right. Yep. So we're here for a classical hematology chat. That's the topic du jour, and the topic today is a few papers, and they're all about VTE in COVID. And this is a topic that's, I think, still evolving. And there's a lot of, I don't know, a lot of people talking about it. That's for sure. Um, and Sven sent two papers in violation of the rule, because you're only allowed to pick one paper. Joe sent one <laughs> paper. And I yeah. sent the Jack letter, which um, is by Valentin Fuster and colleagues, um, which is about uh, what happens in Mount Sinai when they pull a big lever and everyone suddenly gets full dose anticoagulation. So those are the papers we're going to, or that's the paper I'm going to talk about. And the paper Sven picked was a paper in Annals of Internal Medicine on um, randomly selected patients for autopsy. Um, and it was, where was that Sven? In the Netherlands? Or that was the other paper was the Netherlands? The random autopsy series was in Austria. Austria, yes. And we're, and then your other paper was a paper on... Um, Thromboelastography, and that's Oh, that's Italy. right. The TEG paper. The TEG paper. Oh, God. That's going to bore me. Okay. And Joe picked the paper from the oh, Netherlands, which was the rate of VTE in the ICU. That was a paper. Right. And what journal was that from? That's the Journal of Thrombosis and Hemostasis, a well-respected journal in the clotting field. Mm, that's right. It's the, it's the left main stem of journals in the clotting field, is it not? Yeah, it's... Uh, it, that right under blood, it is a, a high-end hemostasis thrombosis journal. That's excellent. All right, so maybe let me toss it to Sven to give us the prelude. So, you know, how would you introduce this topic to the listeners of Plenary Session? Sven, you're a classical hematologist. If somebody said, you know, what's your elevator pitch about um, thrombosis in COVID, what are you going to say? Well, I would say that, um, you know, at, at, the, at the outset of this disease, we were sort of like bystanders, like a lot of specialties, and it was mostly emergency and critical care. And then very quickly, as a lot of these preprint articles came out, you know, we, we were more and more heavily involved because I think anecdotally kept seeing more and more overt clotting, either DVTs or PEs. Um, and, you know, starting with that, you know, infamous, now infamous paper by Tang et al. that showed that these D-dimers were really high and correlated with bad outcomes and clotting and even potentially being on prophylactic heparin may uh, give you a more beneficial outcome. That kind of ignited this huge, um, now, uh, uh, problem that we're seeing with lots and lots of thrombosis in positive COVID patients. And, mm -hmm. You know, at first I was very cautious to um, universally say this is something that is a big problem, but I think we've seen enough, even if it's limited to observational data and non-randomized data, that this is clearly a problem and one that needs to be addressed, and I think it is being addressed in a lot of now ongoing trials. So, so to be clear, uh, at, first, yeah, at first you were skeptical, is thrombosis more common here than in any other critical illness? But now you seem to right. be coming around and you're saying, well, possibly, yes, maybe, um, so let's look at it hard. Yeah, because, you know, there's always the chance that, you know, you see a lot of you see, obviously, a lot of clotting in critically ill patients. Yes. That's why the universal recommendation for most societies is you put them on a pharmacologic prophylactic heparin or anticoagulant of some type. But then, you know, when you see all these people with COVID who are critically ill, it was hard to compare to historical controls and say, well, is this really more clotting than we're used to? Right. 
And I think that, um, you know, now over the last few months, it's sort of become apparent that that's probably true, that we are seeing simply more clotting than we're used to. I see. Now, Joe, how would you, what's your elevator pitch on clotting uh, in COVID? What, what, what are you seeing in the literature? Uh, so I shared Sven's healthy skepticism at first. Sick people are in the ICU just tend to get blood clots. And when people were telling me, oh, hey, people with COVID have even more blood clots, I thought that was probably just some bias in people's observation. But I think Sven's correct. People are publishing more and more retrospective data of a high incidence. Uh, We still lack some really high-grade data to define what the actual incidence is. And I think every day I see some some new paper, something in my Twitter feed, an email from a colleague about a new study of COVID coagulopathy. Mm -hmm. And so this is a hot buzzword. It's a hot buzzword. What the literature is looking at is uh, you know, their standard was just to give pro- prophylactic anticoagulation to all hospitalized patients. But now the questions are, do we need a bigger duration? Should we screen patients for asymptomatic clot? Should we use laboratory tests to decide who should be screened or empirically put on blood thinner? And even more questionable, should we give people blood thinner at home to take for a, long, a period of time after they leave the hospital with COVID? Yeah, those are, oh, those are great. So let me try to run through these. Okay, so one is, um, you know, somebody comes in sick, whether to the emergency room or they're hospitalized and they just had COVID and they go home. And one question is, do you give them a DOAC? Um, do you mm-hmm. give them a Pixaban? Another question is somebody comes into the hospital, they get put on O2 and they're in, you know, medicine floor. Do they get 40 of an oxyparin or do you crank it up to half a mega kig, a mega kig? You know, what are you giving them? Do you give them yep. full therapeutic? That's another question. Folks go to the ICU. Do you give them prophylactic daltaparin or do you crank it up to uh, therapeutic? Then the related question is, do you factor in the D-dimer? Um, if the D-dimer is over a thousand, then do you give it? a full dose anticoagulation. And I think one of the other questions is, um, when do you give TPA? Early and often, yeah. right, Joe? Yeah. <laughs> well, as soon as they roll in the door. As soon as they roll in the door. <laughs> and then you get that COVID test back negative. No. Uh, yeah, yeah, so the TPA, people like TPA too. Um, and we all know, Sven and Joe, that um, uh, blood thinners, more is always better. Is that fair to say? Uh, depends, yeah, depends, on, depends on your practice pattern. Yeah. Okay. It depends on if you want a sin of commission or a sin of omission. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so so I guess the, so it's also worth noting that more is not better. Okay. Uh, always. All right. So now let's dive into some of these articles. So I guess the first article I want to talk about is uh, Sven's article. Let's talk about the um, the Austrian um, autopsy series because uh, I think it's interesting. And, um, and why don't, why don't you summarize the autopsy series from Austria? Um, maybe give listeners the, the full reference, but it's Annals of Internal Medicine. Um, and, yeah. and now we've had a couple more autopsy series. So why don't you tell us about autopsy series in general? Well, this is a paper, it's called Pulmonary Arterial Thrombosis in COVID-19 with Fatal Outcome, results from a prospective single center clinical pathologic case series by Sigurd Lacks et al. Mm-hmm. It's an Austrian group. And again, so the gist of this paper is um, they basically took 11 random patients who had had positive COVID-19 tests 
Um, uh, and so they were 11 deceased patients. And they they had to have died, aut- you're going to say. We have to agree that they, they had to have passed away to get the autopsy. Let's agree to that. Yes, correct. Okay. Uh, okay. So Good. they were, and I think the, the key here is they were selected at random. Um, Among those so, who died. You know, you, exactly. Okay. So, but you could, you could just say the yeah. ones that you had a clinical suspicion for PE or the right. ones that you right. um, actually had a documented DVT, but these were at random. Um, and so they did uh, a full kind of clinical characteristics. Um, most of these patients were elderly uh, in the 80s, uh, 70s, and 80s. Uh, majority were male, so eight out of eight out of 11 were male. Um, all of them had some sort of uh, other comorbid chronic illness like hypertension, diabetes, coronary disease, COPD. And their age? What's their and, age range? It was crazy high. Yeah. So the well, the age range. I'd say that uh, um, the majority of them. The mean age was 80. Exactly. So the mean was 80, were, and I think it was 70 to like 92 or something in this series, right? Yeah. So one of one of the patients was uh, in their 60s. I the see. majority of them were in their 80s, yeah. Yeah, the mean was 80. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so what they ended up finding and they were most surprised by in the series was that all of the patients had uh, at least some uh, thrombosis in the moderate, small to moderate size pulmonary vasculature. Mm-hmm. And they noted that a lot of these were sort of suspected to be in situ thrombus because they were not sort of incompletely occluding, which tends to be, I guess, more of a sign of uh, embolic uh, source. So they, they sort of concluded that these looked like they were in situ developing there in the lung um, and that this was noteworthy that as, especially at random, uh, these patients all had evidence of clot, and not only that, but you know, four or five of them even had sort of gross evidence of infarction in their lungs. Yeah, and I guess that's. I mean, I mean, I think some of the findings were obviously many people had diffuse alveolar damage or you know DAD, um, and exactly. And and you're making this good point that they had in situ thrombus, which is that's an unusual place for in situ thrombus, given that the pressures in the PA tend to be high. They tend to be around what 25 millimeters mercury. Yeah. So, you know, the, the reason I think that this was noteworthy is that the earlier series had come out saying that a lot of these pulmonary microthrombi were present, and this was really scary to see. But then I think, correctly so, a lot of people fought back against that and said, well, you know, pulmonary microthrombi are really common in any patient who has ARDS and is severely ill in the ICU. Is this really noteworthy, or is this just something like we're seeing with any critically ill patient? So here we're actually seeing not only is it microthrombi, but it's actually kind of grossly visible um, clots in the pulmonary vasculature. And these are all people I should also say they were all on some form of prophylaxis. They were on a, um, a flat dose, 40 milligrams of low molecular weight heparin most often. Yeah. So, so this is, again, suggesting that despite being on standard of care prophylaxis, they're getting... Uh, noteworthy clots. Now, since you picked this paper, I, uh, I, they've been a couple other autopsy series. And why don't you tell us about one of the autopsy series where they compared? Actually, before I do that, why did I make a point of saying that these people had to be deceased? Because somebody on Twitter actually said somebody said that there's only been like 500 published autopsy cases total in the world, and somebody was like, you know, mm-hmm. two million people have had COVID. And there's only 500. That's such a that's such a bad thing. It's so few. And I was like, well, the denominator isn't the people who had COVID. Of course, it's people who've died of COVID. It's still many times higher. But let's be clear, we're not doing autopsies on people who survived COVID. Um, so, 
So, <laughs> so, but there have been a series that has compared um, now, I guess, autopsies from people who passed away from COVID-19 against other, you know, even the flu. So, um, yeah. is this just the flu, bro? Well, so I, I mean, I just came across this, and that's because it, it just was published about five days ago, um, was a paper by Ackerman et al., a German group, and this is a New England journal, pulmonary vascular endotheliitis, endotheliolitis, thrombosis and angiogenesis in COVID-19. And the, the title kind of doesn't actually, um, doesn't actually describe the, 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 the content of the paper that well, because actually what they end up reporting in this paper is they compare seven patients, uh, autopsies of patients who died from COVID-19 with seven patients who had died from H1N1. Mm-hmm. And these were kind of uh, banked tissue samples from a decade ago during mm-hmm. that pandemic or the, that epidemic. Uh, and then 10 healthy age-matched uninfected controlled lungs. And so this then looked at comparing, you know, what is the rate of thrombosis and endothelial damage and, you know, histopathologic findings in different populations. And here, actually, in contrast, um, or maybe I guess mimicking what we were, people were saying about the pulmonary microthrombi, um, just kind of the cliff notes is that the, the findings of, of over thrombi were actually very similar between the H1N1 and the COVID patient. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, then again, kind of, it, it's hard because each of these comes out so quickly after the other, and they're all very small series. This is again even smaller than the last series, right. seven patients per right. group. Right. Um, and so, you know, would we see this with anyone else if we did routine autopsies on a lot of influenza patients? Yeah, that's the question. So, Dr. Schatzel, what are your what are your thoughts on this autopsy data? You can, yeah. Well, I think it's uh, hypothesis generating, and uh, people have even that. started to um, write about this entity. And I have I have seen the phrase a new phrase. Pulmonary intravascular coagulation, or PIC. PIC. COVID, yeah, COVID-associated PIC is being written about. Wow. Um, so people are starting to pay attention to it. Um, I think it's a it is a leap away from say from saying that we our management um, should yeah. be changed because I still I agree I don't under, I don't quite know what the controls of sick patients look like. Yeah. So I guess that's a good, that's a, I mean, I like that you pointed that leap out because I guess, I mean, one question is, um, the first question, of course, is, is there something fundamentally different about coagulopathy? And I think Sven's next paper is going to touch on this as well. Um, But then the next question is, even having proven that, um, do you get benefit from changing what you're going to do, your management question? And and those aren't always linked. It could be the case that they have worse clot, but it could also be the case that you crank up the anticoagulation, you just get more bleeding and you don't get a reduction in that clot. You know, that's not, that could also happen. So they're not necessarily uh, linked at the hip. Sven, why don't you tell us about the next paper you picked? This is something that, you know, uh, this isn't OHSU anymore, Sven. This this thromboelastogram, uh, this is going to get the <laughs> listeners fired up. Um, you know, I want you to explain what a thromboelastogram is and also how you interpret it like a Rorschach block, blot, like a Rorschach <laughs> blot, um, because I have done hematology in several hospitals now, the NIH, Washington Hospital Center, um, and OHSU. And at Northwestern, I guess I wrote it on that service. So I guess I would say um, not all these hospitals used TEGS. Not everyone believes in TEGS. 
Um, they still don't have some sort of very high validation kind of studies, but other people do believe in them. Other people do use them, particularly in cirrhotics. So what is a TEG? Um, why do you incorrectly believe it's useful? And then tell us what they, fi- <laughs> what they found on the TEG. God, you're really teeing me up for this one. Well, I just want to, before I get yeah. to that, I want to say that, you know, Joe had mentioned that there's this, you know, new term, pulmonary intravascular coagulation. I even see in this, in the autopsy series, the Austrian one I just mentioned, they actually mention another term that they say is evolving called microclots, and the clots part is all capitalized. And what it stands for is microvascular COVID-19 lung vessels obstructive thromboinflammatory syndrome. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> I have not seen that proposed elsewhere, but they mention it. So I don't know if that's the first time it's mentioned. But you, you, anyway, I think, yeah, it just it goes to show that every, everyone's trying to get their hands on this and, and figure out why this is happening. Um, so, you, you, go, yeah. you can go a whole career without coming up with your own uh, abbreviation, and now is a golden <laughs> yeah. opportunity. I want to see the Olson yeah. score develop, the O-L-S-O-N score. Yeah, well, believe me, we've we've thought about this at length. We're we're trying, we're trying. Okay. Yeah, we're combining. We're making a Shatson score. A Shatson score. <laughs> <laughs> and we actually even tried to get our uh, our other colleague, Dr. Derek Tao, who's uh, another frequent collaborator, yeah. to get his name on it too. We're trying to get as many names as possible into one big sandwiched name. I see. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Okay, so right, now anyway, let's talk okay. about tags. Yeah. Well, you know, it really helps. It would help to have this in a figure, but uh, if people are listening to this and they have a computer on them, they can just Google tag. This is an audio show. Like. I don't know if you got the memo. <laughs> well, I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna include some multimedia. So all right, all right, all right. Google this out. But basically, tag is a is one of these um, whole blood point of care assays, which um, you know are attractive because a lot of the standard coagulation assays we use, the PTT and the PT and fibrinogen, those things. You know, they have to go to the lab and be analyzed, and they can take, you know, upwards of an hour to complete. Yeah. Um, but a thromboelastography is point of care, and it uses whole blood, so both beneficial things. It's quick, and it doesn't have to be spun down, centrifuge, separated into different components. That's true. And what it basically does is you put blood into a cup, and whether there's TEG or there's ROTEM, these are two kind of analogous technologies that are both looking at the same sort of basic principle, where... You take whole blood, put it in a cup, and then you put a little pin in that cup, and in one technology or the other, the cup spins or the pin spins. Mm-hmm. But either way, as it's spinning, uh, the blood will coagulate just as it naturally does. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they have added um, uh, reagents that kind of mimic like a intrinsic pathway measuring assay like a PTT. So a lot mm-hmm. of these assays will add kaolin or allergic acid or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so you wait for the blood to clot, and mm-hmm. as it clots, it puts tension on the pin, mm-hmm. uh, and that's measured. And that's actually sort of measured in what looks like a sine wave, basically, mm-hmm. that prints out on a piece of paper or a computer. And then the amplitude of that sine wave is what the tracing ends up being on this peg readout. And from this, you get all sorts of little parameters that uh, tell you different things about the coagulation system. And so it's purported benefit of this is that you can potentially separate out different blood components yeah, that yeah. are either deficient or uh, hyperactive um, and then target kind of treatments, whether anticoagulant or procoagulant, based on that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So why don't you tell us the which way, which way does it deflect first and what does that mean? And then which way does it go and what does that mean? You know, give, us the, give us a sense of the shape and what each part of the shape means. 
the shape of this when you get it when it prints out is kind of like a wine glass. So okay, the yeah. stem of the wine glass is like the first on the left, and then as you go from left to right, it kind of widens out into like a wine glass shape. And again, that's sort of reflective of this sine wave that develops in representing the torsion of blood being clotting and, and pulling on the pin that's spinning. So the first part before the wine stem kind of widens out is the R time, mm-hmm. the reaction time. Um, and that's on a tag specifically. So again, Rotem is an analogous technology that calls it something different. But this basically is like the time it takes for the first kind of coagulation factors to begin forming a clot. Yeah. Um, and from there on, and that's that's one of the ones we actually pay attention to. So a lot, I'll say a lot of the parameters on these tags, you know, they, they have specific uh, meanings allegedly, but I don't actually pay that much attention to them. Yeah, and things uh, that our time is one. And things that prolong our time are like anticoagulants or deficiencies in factor. Um, that right. that t- makes it take longer uh, for anything to really. Our time is really the time until things start, and it's usually what three to nine minutes or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, and again, there's yeah, there's different different parameters and and reference ranges for these depending on what you're doing. But, okay. Uh, from there on, then you get to the K time, and the, that's the kinetics time, and that's mm-hmm. basically the time it takes for the amplitude of this sine wave to go up to a 20 millimeter um, amplitude on the graph. Mm-hmm. And again, okay. that's that, and I won't even I won't get into kind of what the meaning of that is, but the K time, and then the similar thing is the alpha angle, which is the mm-hmm. uh, the tangent line basically from the beginning of K. Uh, to the slope of that subsequent curve at the end of the K time. So again, there's these different parameters that sort of will also tell you that maybe you're deficient in certain things in your clotting system, but... I would say a short K and a steep alpha angle, those are hypercoagulable states and DIC. I mean, just as a sort of simple rule of thumb, but it can be other things too. Yeah. The final two that you get to is the, the maximum amplitude. Yeah. So that's basically how what's the maximum amplitude of that sine wave and how high does the curve go. And that typically represents platelet function and platelet number. That's so right. a higher yep. maximum amplitude means you have more platelets or more functional platelets. Right. So no Plavix on board, no aspirin, right? Exactly. Yeah. And then exactly. the final yep. part of it. The final part of it is the LOI 30. or mm-hmm. Basically, it's the amount of the clot that is life at 30 minutes. Yes. From the onset of the test. Yes. And in fibrinolysis disorders, that's markedly increased. And so the, the wine glass is over by then, right? Right. So if you have a hyperfibrinolytic disorder, meaning you're lysing quite a lot of your clot in excess, then your LY30 will be very high. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, after all of these numbers, uh, a lot of these tags will spit out what's called a, a clot index. Mm-hmm. And that basically sums up all of these. And I'm not actually sure how it calculates that, but there's an algorithm that it fits out one number, um, and it will kind of give you a global assessment of what's their uh, coagulation status. I don't uh, always pay that much attention to that either. I mostly pay attention to the R time, mm-hmm. the MA, and the LY30 are mm-hmm. the ones that kind of instruct what I do. And I guess I would say, I mean, the simple rule of thumb I've heard people say is that if R time takes a long time, you should be thinking about FFP. If the alpha angle is too shallow, you should be thinking about cryo. If the maximum amplitude is low, you should think about platelets or DDAVP. And if the LY30 um, is markedly increased, comes very quickly, then you should think about uh, transexamic acid uh, sort of thing. Yeah. 
that's a good uh, that's a good summary. But the reason I say it's unvalidated is one could imagine you randomize patients, thousand patients to using this and that pathway versus, you know, making these decisions you otherwise would clinically and see whether or not they have better outcomes. And that's never been done. And so that's why I think some people don't believe in it um, sort of thing. Well, I would disagree there. I mean, okay. there are certain there are a couple of clinical scenarios where there is a mortality benefit uh, based on randomized trials and meta-analyses, and that's trauma, uh, liver transplant, big liver surgeries. Um, and even some cardiovascular data that if you use this to guide transfusion practice, you obviously will reduce the amount of blood products you use, but you'll actually have a mortality benefit with it. Really? So what? Are the, and th so these yeah. are randomized trials of using TEG or not TEG? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a, there's a pretty reasonable one in cirrhotic patients, randomized to TEG-based TEG -based management before procedure, or the clinician just looks at their labs and gives some transfusion. Where is this? Uh, pub where's the paper? Uh, I think that's in gastro. Okay, send me send me some of these links after this. Yeah. The right. thing with the, the the thing with the TEG is it's pretty sensitive for coagulopathies, so it's it's if it's normal, it's really reassuring. Yeah, that's true. So, okay. I think in, so like outside it, of um, I would say outside of those three scenarios, you know, trauma liver transplant, liver surgeries, and maybe some cardiovascular surgeries. You're right. There it's really lacking. And, you know, the data where it seemed like it, seems like it would be most helpful, so in cirrhotic people where their coagulation balance is all thrown off, Yeah. there's data that, yes, it improves the – it reduces the amount of blood products used without any worse bleeding or yes. thrombosis outcomes. But mortality-wise, it's still kind of lacking. I so in there – in those scenarios, you're right. We often kind of use it, and we find it helpful when we're kind of scratching our heads over complicated scenarios where people kind of have a blood clot, let's say, and they're cirrhotic and they need to be on anticoagulation, and you want to get a little better sense of what's the risk of this. I think it's kind of helpful to get a better, better sense there, but are we doing that in a really strongly evidence-based practice? No. <laughs> oh, I see. Chatsla sent a link. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna peruse your links afterwards, and I will I will yeah. be the judge, jury, and executioner of this tag. But anyway, okay. Now, now come to COVID. So what what happens when you take uh, patients who have COVID randomly pick their blood and put it in a tag? And this, unlike um, autopsies, can be done on people who are deceased or non-deceased. So that's one advantage. Correct. Yeah. So what they this is a paper um, again by uh, Panagata et al. Mm -hmm. And this was a group in Milan, Italy. Um, and this paper is called Hypercoagulability of COVID-19 Patients in Intensive Care Unit, a Report of Thromboelastography Findings and Other Parameters of Hemostasis. Um, and so what this group did is they took whole blood from 24 patients who were intubated in the intensive care unit. These were all obviously very critically ill patients. Mm -hmm. And they uh, performed thromboelastography, and they also... Um, drew some labs like all the coagul standard coagulation labs like D-dimer, fibrinogen, PT, PT. They even took uh, factor eight and von Willebrand panels, which I think I haven't seen too much either. This was kind of a unique uh, component of this. And and after they well. after they collected all those tests, then they transfused the patient for low hemoglobin. Is that right, Sven Olsen? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, actually. Okay, I did all not right. See no, that. Go on, go on. All right, so they drew all this blood. Okay, go on. And so, you know, they, uh, I think they suspected or they hypothesized that these, uh, tags would show hypercoagulability. And yeah. that's the nice thing about it is, again, you can kind of get a global sense of that with this clot index, this, this kind of single, single digit, uh, number. But what they found was that, um, you know, all of these components that they expected were kind of, um, 
exactly where they thought they would be. So the, you know, notably the LY30 was, um, was very, very low mm-hmm. compared to, uh, normal, normal, uh, expected, uh, patients. Okay. Um, and that so, reflects that again, I, yeah. this is sort of, this is a problem of, of clot formation and kind of, uh, persistence rather than, um, you know, when you talk about the coagulopathy of COVID, coagulopathy typically implies bleeding. You know, when you hear that Correct. word, yeah. but in, in contrast to that, this coagulopathy is, is showing clotting, definitely yeah. derangements in a lot of the standard clotting assays, but it's not bleeding, it's clotting. Yes. And that's reflected by this, uh, you know, low LY30. But that, that should, that should be a mark of yeah hyperfibrinolysis, is it not? No, a low LY30, so it's the amount of clot lice at 30 minutes. Oh, I so see, I see. Low, okay, right, right, I see. That means that it's not lysing. Not lysing, correct. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I got it backwards. Yeah, you're right, you're right. absolutely right, you're right. Okay, so it's um, the LY30 uh, is markedly decreased. It's a low LY30. That's a hypercoagulable state, absolutely, right, okay. Right. Yeah. And on top of that, then the R time was uh, markedly reduced. Yeah, that's fast, hypercoagulable state. Go on, yeah. Right, right. And the MA tended to be um, tended to be elevated. Yeah, plump. Right. That's, it's all classic hypercoag. And it's different than DIC. Right. DIC wouldn't have messed with uh, the LY30 would, if anything, um, it would be brisk. You'd have lysis really quickly. Yeah, you know, that's, um, I don't know if you can compare it sort of in a blanket term to DIC because there's obviously a spectrum of that. And it does, does tend to progress from kind of uh, um often a hypercoagulable state, and then at the very terminal end of DIC, when it gets to be very bad, it tends to go more to a bleeding phenotype. So there isn't one thing you can I compare Fair to enough. DIC either. Fair enough. Okay, but now tell me, um, but there's, but, but, but I mean, the authors of this paper concluded that this pattern was not consistent with DIC. So what was the basis for that? Well, I think that the fact that, um, you know, and it may be that they are kind of, saying DIC is kind of one blanket uh, okay. sort of so term. I was but, right. I was uh, right. And I think that the general mm-hmm. sense that you see in DIC is that, yeah, you do get very low fibrinogen, low platelets, and your PT and your PTT go markedly higher. Mm-hmm. And I think here we're seeing a little differences in that the fibrinogen actually tends to be higher than you'd expect for just run-of-the-mill DIC. Uh, the PT and the PTT don't tend to be that markedly affected mm-hmm. um and your fibrinogen yeah i think the, the biggest thing is the fibrinogen is that in dic that's kind of like one of the things you know you you tell house staff and trainees that that's what you kind of look for but right. in truth even in the isth criteria that you diagnose dic with the fibrinogen is just one component and actually it's not completely specific to dic so you don't have to hang your hat just on that one number okay that's fair so okay i want to come back to your thing but doc i've had a chance to look very briefly at this hepatology paper that dr schatzel has sent me the randomized control trial of teg or no teg i notice the sample size is 30 and 30 in this randomized trial huh and the mortality curves are superimposed i'm going to take a close read at this but i'm not <laughs> i i've got some well and that's what i and that's what i mean by you know the data for settings outside of the ones that have these robust uh randomized trials who's are, don't call this trial robust that's what i want to say <laughs> hey, they never said that they lived that longer they said that yeah they, i never they said that either. Left i see okay all right all right okay okay fine point well taken this is okay yeah. point well taken in the world of classical hematology i i guess i'm sorry i wasn't aware of this study i will t- i will give it a good faith read and i will understand the evidence is not the same <laughs> as in other fields okay all right so so this tag this tag paper is actually interesting in my mind i mean i think it is 
Um, I guess it tells you some things that are useful, right? That like, um, you know, we're not having impaired platelets all over the place. We're not having uh, accelerated fibrinolysis. If anything, it looks like a pan hypercoagulable state per the tag. And I believe there's even one, um, Ash, uh, there's an article by, uh, you know, one of their FAQs they have on, on COVID, and they mentioned this paper. Uh, and they even mentioned a, a trial that's going on using TEG to justify and randomize people to different strengths or different strategies for anticoagulation. So it is being used in a trial. Okay. All right. Well, I can't spend any more time on TEG because although I think it's interesting, we got a couple other things to talk about. All right. Uh, before we talk about Joe's paper, I want to talk about my Jack letter, the one I picked, um, because I want to um, take my pal Valentin Fooster to task. But before I talk about that, I want to just ask you guys one question. Um, you know, it's so interesting in the last couple of days, they've been, this is unrelated to thrombosis, but since I have you both. Um, the last couple of days, they've been all these pictures that have come out of the Ozarks and they show those people in the pool, in the pool party, and they're violating social distancing left, right, and center. You know what I'm talking about, Joe? I, I've heard of this. Yes. You've heard of such parties. You, uh, it's not. I half expected to see you at the party, but you weren't at the party. Yeah, you were in Oregon. Uh, okay, so there's this pool party. Then the other thing I saw was, you know, there's a apparently some subset of people who are like, you know, they protest masks, they don't wear masks, and they protest shutdown, those kind of things. And then I yeah. saw a bunch of doctors on Twitter being like, you know, if you're going to go to the Ozarks and party like this, if you're going to wear, not wear the mask, if you're going to violate all these rules, then you know what? Maybe when you actually get sick with COVID, maybe, you know, you should be put on the bottom of the priority list for me getting medical care. And I, and, I, and I heard that and I kind of got a little shock because I was like, I didn't know it was acceptable to say such things because as doctors, we do not judge why people have become sick. We don't hold it against them. We just deliver care. Whether you're a, you know, I mean, I think sort of one of the seminal examples is lung cancer and smoking. You never, we, no one would, it, yeah. it's not, you know, it, you, you give absolutely, the absolute best care to someone, whether they smoked, whether they didn't smoke, you know, it doesn't matter at all. And similarly, I think we have to say, uh, you know, if you didn't do all the things that somebody thought you should do and you get COVID-19, we're still going to give you the best possible care. What do you guys think as doctors? Um, is it appropriate to say such things? I mean, I think well, I'm just trying to think, I'm trying to think of an analogy of like, what if someone manages their finances in a really, really stupid, poor way, and then they go and they want a financial advisor. And even though they keep doing stupid things, they want their finances managed by this person. Are they supposed to be like, I'm not going to take this client because they're being dumb? Or you're right. Say, I still want to help. This I want. Yeah. I don't know. That's a and, and that's a and that's a simple yeah. analogy. Uh, but um, in medicine, the oath is even more strong. Joe, what do you think? Uh, I mean, to be honest, uh, when I was practicing internal medicine, most of my patients' illness was a lifestyle-related illness. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was diabetes, heart disease, mm -hmm. complications of smoking. Right. So, I mean, a huge chunk of healthcare is. Um, us treating a disease that the patient's choice has brought about to some degree, right? And yeah. and and if we had this attitude that you don't get healthcare if you don't play by our rules, I think yeah. it would be crazy. And then the other thing I think that's worth saying is that, you know, I don't know how much do people choose to engage in bad diet, bad exercise. I mean, these are endemic to America. And if you're born in certain socioeconomic class and you don't have access to certain things. I mean, it's it's common to sort of fall into those traps in America. And and similarly, 
you know, if you don't follow the rules on COVID because you're, you know, in an ideological bubble where those rules are hard to penetrate, I don't know how much of it is your fault or the fact that, you know, we become so polarized. So I guess I'd say well, it's, a, it's super dangerous when doctors start saying things like if you don't play by the rules, you don't get health care. I think it's crazy. I mean, there is a there is a distinction, a little bit of a distinction okay. here, where if you smoke, you're endangering yourself. Whereas if you're going out into this mass gathering of people, you're potentially endangering a lot of other people if you didn't go out and you know. So that is a somewhat different. You're right. It has I, implications I, for others, right? But the same with. Um, but I do. Yeah, have, no, no, that's a fair. I point. think regardless, I think regardless, you can't. That's. Yeah, that's that's a little bold to say that. It's a little bold to say that. I say you're right. You're right. That's a good point. That's a good point. They endanger other people too. Okay, let's talk about the Jack letter. Okay, so I guess I, I say I read this letter and I thought it had problems. And then I heard the news coverage and that was even worse. But then I listened to a 15-minute podcast by Valentin Fuster, the physician-in-chief of Mount Sinai. And basically he was like, I wish I, I should take like excerpts from this and put it in the show to like show people what he said. He basically was like, um, you know, early on we heard rumor that COVID has a lot of clot. And so he goes to some meeting and they were like, you know... Um, at, he was like, let's just see if we have a lot of clot. And they found a bunch of clots. And then he was like, okay, let's just change the practice. Everyone we discharge home, we get oral anticoagulation. Everyone in the ICU gets full anticoagulants. And one day they flip a switch and they just start treating people. And he treats like 5,000 people on his protocol. Just 5,000 people get full dose anticoagulation, anticoagulation home. And, and then he does this paper, which is like a before and after, you know, Cox proportionate model, kind of what, you know, does anticoagulation duration uh, improve outcomes? And, and at the end of the podcast, he says, people came to me and said, Valentin, why don't you join our randomized trial? Why don't you contribute patients to our randomized trial? And I said, no. I want to know if this is safe before I would join a randomized trial. And I was like, you don't need 5,000 patients to learn if you should join a randomized trial. My God, man. By the time you join the randomized trial, the COVID's going to be gone. There'll be no COVID left in New York City. It's going to be over. So I thought this was crazy talk. Um, this is the paper that's a retrospective review of outcomes at Sinai. And folks who got anticoagulation seem to do super better than folks who didn't get full-dose anticoagulation. Um, what do you think, Joe, when you saw this letter? Uh, the first thing I ever saw of it was the survival curves in my Facebook feed, and those looked pretty impressive. <laughs> could you fit a laser pointer between them, Joe? Yeah, if I recall, I could, actually. <laughs> you could fit a beach ball. They were, it was a huge survival benefit. Yeah. Yeah. It was huge. It was a Gleevec. It's the Gleevec for COVID is what it looked like yeah. to me. So then I continued scrolling on Facebook and uh, uh, reminded myself to look at it later. <laughs> then, I see. When I, when I actually read it, um, I mean, it suffers from a plenty of methodologic flaws, as I'm sure you'll point out. Yeah. Uh, that would temper my enthusiasm, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Which is that, um, you know, <laughs> these treatment decisions are not made in isolation. There's confounding by indication. He flipped a big switch at time, so in later periods of time, more people got anticoagulation than earlier periods. And so if our COVID care is getting better over time, that's gonna be attributed to the anticoagulation, not necessarily the fact that we've gotten better at caring for these patients. I mean, another problem is there's some immortal time I think they haven't corrected for, which is the longer you live, the more likely you are to be exposed to anticoagulation, particularly longer durations of anticoagulation. That was their primary sort of analysis variable. Um, so it had a lot of problems. I don't want to beat on about it. Let's talk about the last paper, Schatzel's paper, 
And then, um, and then let's just close with some closing thoughts on what we're doing right now. All right, so Joe Schatzel, so what, what was your paper that you picked? Well, I selected a, a study from uh, the group in the Netherlands, um, very well-respected uh, thrombosis group, very nimble to publish this quickly and uh, they did the the classic study that I learned to do as a med student the single center retrospective cohort study mm-hmm the classic <laughs> and it's just refreshing like a, like a sandwich that you make all the time you know all about it's it. the PB and J of research yeah pretty much of, of clinical research yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay okay so they made a PB and J and what did they find in it well, they reviewed patients who were admitted with COVID at their center, and they got right around 200. I think they had 198, and about 40% of those are in the ICU. Yeah. So uh, in total, blanket, you just take the in, the incidents, about 20% of the people in their cohort were found to have a thrombus. Mm-hmm. Pretty high. And then when you dig deeper, um, you find that uh, only 13% of the whole cohort was symptomatic. So there's some who were screened. I see. Uh, And then they didn't um, universally do screening. It seems like, I mean, this is more of a retrospective study, so it's clinician's choice. Only about 28% of them ended up getting screened. Yeah. Then they did some subset analysis in the ICU, so about 40% of their cohort was in the ICU. And uh, they find a pretty strikingly high rate of symptomatic clots uh, that uh, increase over time. And they have patients, you know, staying in their ICU for two, three weeks. So at the end of that, they're looking at the rates. I see. So what, what, what it really... What I really wanted to know when this first started was give me some data on the actual incidents so I can look in the literature and say, what does this compare exactly, to other, right. other patients? Right. This is... This was the first study to kind of flush that out. And the incidence does look, uh, in this cohort, higher than what's previously published. Um, The data I was able to find for ICU patients in general is with screened plus, uh, screened plus symptomatic class is around 10% when prophylactic heparin is used. All of these patients got prophylactic madroparin, which is uh, in vogue in Europe. Mm-hmm. We don't use Lovenox in America. They must get some discount on it or something. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So that's that's a nice summary. I guess, um, I don't know, one of the things I learned early on was I was surprised by some of the Asia series because I saw that they looked at blood clots and none of the patients had gotten prophylaxis. And then I learned that actually in many um, places in Asia, prophylaxis is not normal because they don't have the rate of inpatient DVT and VTE that we do in the U.S. and in Western countries. Um, did you know that? Yeah, I no, I did not actually. You know, it's considered pretty much standard of care in the U.S. They have all these what they call RAMs, risk assessment models, scoring systems about who, what inpatient you should consider it for, and what you don't, yeah. which ones you don't. But to be honest, it's those are fairly cumbersome, and I think most people who don't have real bleeding risk are just put on it if they're hospitalized for any real duration in the U.S. Yeah. I mean. It, I could see we have a our population as a whole is has higher rates of obesity and uh, other illnesses that probably predispose them a little to thrombosis. 
All right. So I guess my closing thoughts here are you both feel uh, more on the stronger side that thrombosis here is at least as high as perhaps on higher than um, other similar critical illnesses. You both feel in that that camp. The questions we have is what to do about it. And we all feel like the Jack letter is uh, neither here nor there. It's not going to get us far. We need some few well done randomized trials. Um, Sven had made this point to me earlier um, in a Medscape article that I wrote that he gave suggestions for that I didn't acknowledge him in (laughs) and that he was sore about. But I didn't know you want to be acknowledging some Medscape article. I thought it would would drag your reputation down, but I'm happy to acknowledge you here. I'm early in in my career. You take what you get. I the ladder with any rung I can get. (laughs) Any rung. Okay. So anyway, one, one of the points you were telling me that it's not in the article, maybe you can explain it here, is that... You know, simply because someone is pro-coagulable does not necessarily mean more heparins is the answer. Can you explain that a little bit? Like, it's not necessarily that you are deficient in a dose of low molecular weight heparin. It might be something else going on. Well, I think we don't, I don't think we fully understand why people are clotting with COVID. I yeah. mean, there's a lot of really great hypo- hypotheses um, based on what we know about other viruses and what we know about, you know, DIC from bacterial infections. And I think you can reason that a lot of this is driven by inflammation and that we know that the inflammatory and coagulation cascades are really intimately interlinked. Um, but we don't know. And so, you know, the same thing, then we don't know whether if we target anticoagulation, is that even the right thing to do? Or do we need to really right. uh, focus our attention on the inflammatory cascade? Right, right. Um, and so then you could, if you don't even know that, then you don't also know whether upping the dose it makes any difference. Right. You know? So I think that's the, and that's the reason why a lot of groups um, are trying to even propose different types of blood thinners that target different arms of coagulation. And, you know, then obviously all the anti-inflammatory trials that are going on right now too. Right. Well put. Joe Schatzel, what do you think? Last thoughts on thrombosis. Um, I think it, it is becoming clear that COVID probably has a higher rate of thrombosis than the average critically ill patient. Probably. I want to see real trials of different doses or different agents to designed to prevent thrombosis before mm-hmm. I really jump on the bandwagon. Mm-hmm. Um, I uh, have strong apprehensions about empiric TPA use. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I don't think there's any compelling data for giving people extended DOAC after discharge. Oh, I'd like yeah. some, some studies there before I really routinely adopt that in my practice. Well, Valentin Fooster disagrees with you. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know. I, I, I need to see some av- evidence. I think what this highlights is this is a novel challenge for the, the clinical community. We have a new disease entity that we have no prior history with that has a has a lot of morbidity and we have to make decisions based on very minimal evidence yeah. low low grade evidence yeah so how we make those decisions um, we have no training in that i think we just kind of all as a group kind of there there's some giant group hematologic movement to consider these things but uh, in the absence of evidence, I don't think we're well trained on how to make these decisions. I mean, I think this probably comes up once or twice a career. Maybe the last example is with HIV. Right, right. That's a good point. Um, yeah. 
I agree with you. That's well put. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Sven. I think um, it'll be interesting to see not only you know what effect of when these trials of different anticoagulation protocols come out and are reported. I'm actually very interested to see the bleeding rates because I think what's making people more comfortable in doing empiric higher doses is that the COVID thing doesn't seem to be a bleeding diathesis. In fact, it's the opposite. And so I think maybe it's making people a little more comfortable in giving higher doses when they wouldn't otherwise. And so I'm really curious to see now in, in a controlled setting, does that actually bear out? Yeah. Um, because we all because, know that you, know, yeah, it, you can have more yeah, bleeding you know, than the, you expect like in some of those uh, corona papers. Yeah, yeah, and you know the like the the trials of extended DOAC prophylaxis after discharge. Um, there was a bleeding signal, but it wasn't huge. And so I think people are saying, if I if I'm if I'm hazarding a guess, I'm, I'm guessing people are thinking, well, COVID is really the opposite of a bleeding problem, and so you know the balance definitely tips in favor of that. So I I I, it's, I struggle with this, and I see where people's reasoning comes from. Mm-hmm. You know, what I find interesting is to, you know, one of the points Joe was making earlier that um, COVID has really brought out the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You know, the the (laughs) retrospective single institution, you know, uh, outcome study, there's just a truckload of them. You get like four a day. Even since we picked articles to come on our classic hematology chat, there's been so many new ones that are published that we're already like a little bit behind the curve. Um, Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you don't want a PB&J. You just want a good turkey sandwich. And that's the randomized trial. You just want one turkey sandwich and not 20 PB&Js over and over PB&J. I just want one good turkey sandwich, Joe. And, and we've been a long way into this, and there's still no turkey sandwich. There's no turkey sandwich and not even one near. And Valentin Fooster says he won't even think about a turkey sandwich till he makes 52 PB&Js. And that, to me, that's crazy talk. I was like, you can at least get the turkey sandwich going. Well, you make a few PB&Js. Come on. Well, the good news is, you know, if you look at, I just looked on clinicaltrials.gov this morning, and there's something like 20 or more randomized trials uh, that are in the process of recruiting or yeah. planning to soon recruit uh, looking at this. So there's turkey sandwiches on the horizon. Yeah. But um, maybe there'll be no COVID patients left by the time they finish. Who knows? Just like that China Remdesivir oh, study. One can hope. Yeah, I mean, one can hope. Sure, good. That'd be great. But, that'd uh, be great. Well, I see um, Joe has got um, his bag packed there in the background. Looks like he's headed to the Ozarks. Uh, Sven, uh, <laughs> it's good to hear from you again. Uh, all right. Well, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on. Yep. Thank you. Good to see you, man. Yeah. Good to see you. All right. I'm back in plenary session, end of day's bunker, and I'm joined by Dr. Waleed Jalad, who I'm delighted to have on the show today. Uh, He's joining us remotely via Zoom. Uh, Dr. Jalad is a professor of medicine at uh, the University of Pittsburgh, and he directs the Center for Pharmaceutical Policy and Prescribing. And he's here to talk to us about all things drug-related and COVID-19. So Dr. Jalad, it's a pleasure to have you here finally on the podcast. Finally, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Actually, we've had a lot of great conversations, so looking forward to having a public one. A public one, that's right. They've all been <laughs> yeah. secret. And in fact, one yeah. was a clandestine black ops conversation that, that somebody went squealing to the media about, but we shall not bring that up. Um, <laughs> not today. <laughs> not today. Uh, so, you know, it's a pleasure to have you here. And, um, you know, we could have spent a whole hour talking about all the sorts of usual things you study. But of course, we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of a pandemic. 
And, you know, there's just a number of really interesting and complex um, stories around all these drugs that are really rapidly coming to market or trying to come to market, as well as, you know, the vaccine story. So I'm wondering, you know, if we might want to jump in on remdesivir. Um, and then we're going to work our way around these drugs. So, you know, my question for you is, is what do you, what do you think? Um, you know, we've got the 70 word press release from the NIAID investigators. We have an unusual study from the Gilead investigators in the severe COVID and in moderate COVID. Uh, one has uh, no control arm that I'm aware of five or 10 days and the other does. Um, they're, they're, they're open label. Um, I don't know. Where do you want to jump in on this? What are your thoughts? I really want to, I really want to know. Yeah. I have to say, if I were a better storyteller, I mean, the, the whole um, the whole milieu of drug development and COVID is fascinating, yeah. and there are just unbelievable stories. And a bunch, and the the media around this are are really creating some nice little stories. And someone really should put it together. Yeah, no, you're right. It's a, it's a great. It's a book almost. Yeah, it, it it could be a book, and it may be a book. And there's probably more. There, I'm sure there is more. We're going to learn in the next month, two months about all the backstories of everything. Yeah. So, but, but remdesivir, remdesivir, <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it's funny how we went from maybe two, two and a half weeks ago where the head of the head of a NIAD, Anthony Fauci calling it the standard of care, <laughs> you know, and now um, a couple of days ago, I think he walked that back a little and said, it's, it's at least better than nothing. Hmm. So it's amazing how you can go from standard of care to better than nothing. And right. The issue is in those two weeks since the trial, um, since the emergency authorization and since the trial results were released by press release, we, we still don't really have the data. Right. So it, um, it is probably one of the most important pieces of data for COVID around drug development that we can have now mm-hmm. because it is it is now going to be widely used mm-hmm. as soon as Gilead can make enough of the drug. Right, right. Um, and yeah, you're right. There are, this was the NIH sponsored trial. Mm-hmm. Gilead itself sponsored um, two open label trials. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's a couple other trials um, that are still in play where remdesivir is one of the arms um, and we'll know more soon. Right. But, but this mm-hmm. was the trial that was sponsored by the NIH and led to the emergency use authorization by the FDA. Right. And, and my understanding, and, uh, you know, correct me if, I, if I'm wrong, but, um, you know, is that uh, the, the real crux of the NIH data is a primary endpoint that's sort of a, 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 a three-category scale of clinical improvement. Um, it originally was that seven-point WHO scale with a 14-day, um, you know, uh, time point. But now it's a three-point scale that's kind of flexible. So it's looking at the whole Kaplan-Meier curve. Um, and it's, but it's a measure of clinical improvement. But the nice thing is it's a double-blind study. So we don't, so, you know, doctors would not be biased towards, you know, trying to get people on remdesivir out of the hospital sooner than those not on remdesivir, because presumably they're blind to that. Um, the secondary endpoint was overall mortality, and that looked numerically in the right direction with a p-value of 0.059, you know, just almost quite there, but not quite there. Um, and and I think, you know, so that's the data that people are saying is, is so good. The primary endpoint's positive per press release. Um, the OS is in the right direction, at least trending. Um, is, is that sort of how you see it? Yeah, and obviously we we want this drug to work. If the if the overall mortality findings, as included in the press release, are true, I mean that that really is amazing. Yeah, um, that is. It's, now there's there's some reasons why I have some questions about that. If you look at the mortality in some of the other trials, we can come back to that. Yeah. But the the, the primary outcome is very interesting. 
because it was a seven point scale. And and the outcome was what is the proportion of patients at day 14 on each of the seven, um, each of the points on the scale. So the, the new outcome was called clinical improvement, but it's actually the, the best three, um, parts of the scale. Mm-hmm. So they took the seven point scale and they say, what is your time until reaching one of the bottom three categories? The, the bottom see. three categories are either discharge to home, not requiring any oxygen, yeah. discharge to home, requiring oxygen, and then being in the hospital, um, but not requiring medical care. Yeah. So it's very interesting that that's called clinical improvement. Yeah. The other trials that are happening with remdesivir, actually clinical improvement is defined a little differently. So it's, it's, it's interesting when we get data from the other trials, we'll see how they compare. But at least what you what, what has been released is that the time to reaching one of those best three states in the ordinal scale is better on remdesivir, and maybe there's a mortality effect. And maybe there's a mortality but, effect. And, yeah. and, and that is really, and then the other thing we should add is the population, which is, my understanding is, people who are hospitalized with a pulse oximetry that was less than 94 percentage points, um, presumably off oxygen. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there were four criteria. So you had to have a positive COVID plus okay. either a pulse ox less than 94. And I think it was mechanical ventilation. Um, it was a couple other things. But I see. I, I'm sure most people are in there because of hypoxia. I see. Right, right. So then yeah. you, one can imagine that, you know, even though it's a it's a tailored population, it's still very broad from the person who is lying in the hospital bed on a touch of <laughs> O2, two liter O2, to the person yeah. who is on ECMO, uh, maybe, uh, you know, with the clots everywhere and, uh, and you know, you're, you don't know what to do, right? So it's like a huge range. And I guess, I guess my thought would be, um, you know, I, I mean, one question would be that within this huge range, let's say everything about the efficacy is true, um, you know, and, and let's even give them a few extra decimal points on their p-value of OS and say that's true as well. Um, we'll still be wondering and will be some room for further studies to say, is it working best for the people on the severe end of the spectrum or the, the least severe of the people who are severe enough to enter? Uh, absolutely. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. And actually, I think there's going to be an important role for quote real world evidence and figuring out who 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 it's going to work best in you know we'll see some of it for the trials but it's absolutely right and i think that's one of the things i had mentioned on twitter is uh, and this may not have been one of my good comments but uh, um, just like you said if if the requirement is less than 94 percent on a pulse ox yeah we've all been you know I, i don't know what the actual requirement was in the trial yeah did it have to be sustained pulse ox did it have to be two measures three measures was it presentation to er correct i mean we've all seen um people whose pulse ox is low temporarily yeah and we've all seen people who are temporarily on oxygen for whatever reasons this this that so i don't i don't know exactly how it was used in the trial but that's the big question especially when you have a limited supply is are you going to give it to those patients who are just on one liter of oxygen, a little bit of hypoxic, or are you going to give it to the people on ECMO? Yeah. And we have no idea. Yeah. Absolutely no idea. Yeah. That's and, and I, I don't yeah. think there are any trials. So we'll we'll rely on subgroup analyses. Yes, correct. I, I think yeah. there are trials where the population is less sick. Um, but but I don't think there's a it's not I don't think there's any trials limited to just really sick populations. Yes. Um, that's, that's, um, that's, that's an excellent point. We'll rely, I mean, at best case on sort of pooled subgroup analyses, maybe from several of these studies, maybe looking at interaction coefficients and things like that. But I think you're right. I I, I think that it's going to be that. And then what, and then, um, 
and then expert opinion, which yeah. I know you love, and then, <laughs> <My> <laughs> real, and then real, real world real data, world, right, right, which I think I think is gonna is gonna have an effect. Yeah, um, but I, I don't know what the infectious disease doctors are going to do if they have limited supply. Yes, and, and there are other issues around how the drug was distributed. Yes, um, and how it will be distributed, and it's not clear. There's not going to be enough supply for everyone. Yes. So h- how do you decide who to give it to? And I have no idea. Uh, that's a that's a very yeah. tough question. Maybe we'll circle back to that because I want yeah. you to also tell me about a little bit about the context. So we also have. You know, you've been tweeting uh, very well, I think, about the French discovery trial. And, and you're also that trial that, you know, there's the Chinese study that, you know, m- maybe was even, you know, really direct to a point that you were making very early on, which was uh, they they were inc- enrolling on this severe COVID trial. But by the time they, you know, got halfway there, uh, the, the there were no more severe COVID patients. It was over. And so, you exactly. know, it's a negative Lancet study, uh, and, but it's underpowered. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. Um, so how do you put all the three together? Yeah, that's the, so the, the Lancet trial is the big issue that, that we need explanation about because it was negative, um, but it was stopped early, like you said. Um, the, the, there were a couple interesting things about the Lancet trial. I, I think it was a fairly similar population, uh, but one of the issues is that there was no change in the viral load. So um, it's, it's, it's unusual for a for, for an antiviral to work with no change in the viral load, mm-hmm. and um, you know we saw another trial that actually came out that tested interferon, calitra, and ribavirin, and yes. it did actually show a change in viral load. So I, I think we have to see what the viral load is in the NIH trial and, and try to understand what that means. Yes. The other thing about the Lancet trial, in addition to being much smaller, obviously, than the NIH trial underpowered, is that many of those patients are on interferon. Uh, which is really interesting to me. It was being used in China at the time of the trial. I think 40%, 30 or 40% of the patients are on interferon. Mm. So, and we know now from the other study that there's some effect of interferon, at Mm -hmm. least in early COVID. Mm -hmm. So I'm very curious to see in NIH trial, what other therapies are patients on? And I presume that they're actually not on interferon Mm -hmm. in the U S no one was using interferon. I don't think it was probably an exclusion from the trial. So if we end up with a Lancet trial that was negative, no effect on viral load, I know it was underpowered, yes. um, but they're on interferon. Yes, yes. Um, so, you know, and I don't think we're not going to see a head-to-head interferon versus remdesivir trial anytime Correct. soon. That's right, yeah. So that's where you put the, the discovery trial. The discovery trial is being run out of the French version of the NIH. Mm-hmm. And it has four arms. And, um, and they're both and all four arms are compared against standard of care. So mm-hmm. standard of care versus remdesivir, standard of care versus Kalitra, and, and standard of care versus interferon, and standard of care versus hydroxychloroquine. Mm-hmm. So although there, so we'll be able to see what the difference is um, versus standard of care, although it's not head to head. Now that trial, um, I think has had trouble enrolling also mm-hmm. because they've, they, they wanted to enroll across Europe, but only really have been enrolled in France. But um, the DSMB met last week um, and did not stop any of the arms mm-hmm, of the trial, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. meaning that there's still a chance that any of those might work. Correct. So that that's so the, the landscape for remdesivir is we need to get the NIH results. We need to um, reconcile them with the Lancet trial, and then we need to get the discovery results. And there's actually one... There's actually one of the small uh, trials in China, one of the Gilead trials, um, I think completed enrolling, but we haven't seen any data from that. So that'll be interesting to see what happens with that trial. Yeah. 
And this this is just remdesivir. We're spending all the time know, talking right, about right, remdesivir. Right. It's it's not going to be the real big medicine that, that really helps us. You know, it's not going to be the drug that changes the course of anything or fixes the economy. Yeah. Um, but still, it, it may be something. And and tell me more why you say that because you believe that um, even if these results are true. Uh, it, it, there's yeah. still going to be an 8% more, and you know, so we're talking about like a three percentage point mortality benefit, 11 to eight, but there's still an eight percentage point mortality benefit. It's still a highly transmissible right. disease. It's still, exactly. you know, it's, that's still too many deaths. Uh, even yeah. if this and it's is not, yeah, right. It's not going to, people are still going to get the infection. They, they may spend less time in the hospital. Yeah. Um, and, and as if, as with everything, there's always the unintended consequences. If there's some obviously successful drug. That, that is promoted that way in the media, that, that it can affect people's behaviors. And that's certainly something we don't want, um, you know, if that could affect transmission. So it's, you know, the, the therapies that we're waiting for are the, are the monoclonal, and the, the antibodies, um, you know, convalescent therapy, vaccines, um, and there's a bunch of other things. Yeah. Right? This is what we have now. This is what we have now. Okay. So I want to, I want to eventually hit on these issues, but maybe, maybe, um, you know, convalescent. We'll do that in the third, we'll do that in the third hour. <laughs> in the third hour. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, I mean, now, I mean, that's a fair treatment of remdesivir. Um, now let's talk yeah. a little bit about hydroxychloroquine. And, you know, I think, um, you know, the more I actually reflected on it, I realized that, you know, I, I think you and I are like, actually, you know, we, we, we were much closer than I thought maybe our initial sort of tweets were uh, on, on the question, because I think. You know, you and I both agree that we got to figure out if hydroxychloroquine works or not in an expeditious manner. We 100% agree that that's an important thing. Um, we also agree that, you know, it's possible that a drug works well in, in you know, as a prophylactic measure, even while it may not work well in severe disease or vice versa. A drug could work well in severe disease, but not as prophylaxis. You know, these are all possible things. I think yeah. one of the sort of super excellent points you made was, and, and this is in part because I think maybe this became a political football, um, is that on the one hand, you don't want to go out there and falsely sell it before you really know it works. But on the other hand, you don't want to go out there and falsely demonize it when you don't know it works, because that also screws you when you're trying to answer the question of, is this efficacious and run a trial? And so you've been sort of really good, I think, about not erring in either direction, uh, not trying to oversell it, but also being careful not to demonize it. How, how do you, how would you put it? Right. Yeah. And I, we'll, we'll see how much we agree or disagree, okay. um, in the, in the course of the next five minutes. Okay. Um, I think we, we mostly, but I agree with those points you made, but yeah, that, that is one of the issues that I've seen with hydroxychloroquine, which has been a huge, huge, huge disappointment. Um, is this over, is, is like you said, um, is this overhyping of the adverse effects or falsely demonizing it? Um, early on, there were a lot of people who were talking about, and, and these are well-known people about yeah. how it's, it causes blindness, it kills you. Yeah. Um, it causes sudden death. It, yeah. You know, it's a dangerous drug. It's the most dangerous drug I've ever seen. There's toxicologists who were talking about how dangerous it was. Right. Um, and yeah. You know, it, um, and, and people were latching on to these points of view in part because I think they staked out early positions and it's hard to change. And also in part, in part because it became so politicized yeah. that it became so entangled with your feelings about Trump. Exactly. Yeah. Um, that, that, um, that, that it became this adult. Like you, you couldn't, 
you couldn't say anything good about it because then you might be talking like Fox News. Right. You know, on the right. other hand, um, <laughs> you know, you, you can't say something bad about it if you're on the other side of the spectrum. So it was very difficult to have this con- a rational conversation about whether the drug works or not. And this, this was happening in the context of, uh, you know, thousands of people are dying. We have no idea if the drug works. We're not going to know for a month or two months at the time if the drug works. And, you know, let's have a rational conversation about whether it works or not. So um, that's what I was trying to do a little bit on Twitter is to make sure that people understood that it's not actually as dangerous as people say. And it's actually not as good as people say. You know, somehow you have to find the middle in Twitter. And that's where I was trying to live. Yeah. Um, And I mean, and I I think you, but you also made a really good point, which is that for all the toxicology, I mean, I do think I, I I mean, I said when the moment you pointed it out, maybe a couple of times, I saw what you were getting at, which is, you know, we, you give, you give back to him all the time and you don't tell every patient who's getting back to him, uh, how horrible Steven Johnson's is, even though that's something that occasionally happens, right? We're not scaring people out of it all the time. And, and, and we want people to do the trial. But if you go around telling people that you're going to get QT prolongation, sudden cardiac death all the time when you take hydroxychloroquine, where it's true, it happens very rarely, but, you know, it's so infrequent that we're very comfortable giving that drug for rheumatoid arthritis, for instance, which is really kind of a, right, a long-term chronic condition. So you don't want to oversell the harms because that can really cripple in our randomized trial. Um, and, and it yeah. did, it did, um, I don't know if it crippled, but it really did set back the randomized trials and, and the PIs will tell you that. Yeah. And um, not, not in the PI in Minnesota, the PI yeah. at other places have said that publicly. And um, yeah, yeah, we don't say that for other drugs. This drug, hydroxychloroquine, has been around for 50 years. Um, and people, and I'm going to say something in a second, um, but, but also people were also conflating the, the adverse effects um, when you combine hydroxychloroquine and azithro. Mm-hmm. So, so they would say that hydroxychloroquine causes sudden cardiac death where it's actually very, very rare. Um, it's, it's much more common to have QT abnormalities when mm-hmm. you combine it with azithromycin. Mm-hmm. But, but people were just saying hydroxychloroquine bad, you know, when, when a lot of times I think they're talking about the combination. Now, I totally agree that we don't talk about side effects. We, we don't talk about Stevens Johnson all the time about Bactrim. Right. We don't talk about, um, we, we even don't talk when we give people Coumadin. Right, right. Or, or <laughs> right. anticoagulant that, right, they, that right. they could die, that it causes death. Yeah. It is accurate to say that anticoagulants cause death. Yeah. So the flip side is the benefit. So I think that that's the issue that if, if there is some risk, but no benefit, then a drug is unsafe. Um, now, I still don't think you say that it will kill you, yeah. but there's always the possibility w- without a possibility of helping you. So part of I think part of every discussion around the drug's risks, you're, you're balancing what the benefits are. Yeah. So um, and here there was unknown benefit. The benefit was uncertain. Yes. Then one of the things that I thought we initially might have disagreed about, but over time, I actually think we might be more aligned than than I would have sort of set thought at the outset was you know, while, while you're running the randomized control trials, um, I guess one question, you know, one a subheading of that is, um, you know, do you want tight inclusion criteria should be more pragmatic? And I think, you know, I might favor more pragmatic, but, you know, we could talk about that. But then the next question is, there's always going to be somebody who doesn't fit your RCT eligibility criteria. And the answer is, what do you do with such a person? Uh, or there's always going to be somebody who walks into an ER where there is no enrollment going on. And the answer is, what do you do with such a person? 
And, yeah. you know, my natural inclination and, you know, is to always be like, you know, you don't want you want to wait and find out the data. Um, you know, your your excellent point was you you wait a little too long and there be, you won't have to wait anymore. There will be no more patients with COVID. It'll be all over. Um, right. And then I think that sort of the next thing I thought was, you know, OK, maybe actually Wally Dillard has a good point. Um, maybe the way to do it is you you can give it off protocol, uh, but like at least let's collect all the data and like real, you know, have a futility rule. So if we give it to 500 people and, you know, there's still a 20 percent rate of intubation. You know, we halt it. And then I think you said that, yeah, that's a that's a good. So I think that's kind of like the part we were meeting at. Um, but, you know, yeah. so but let but talk that through a little bit, because you're also somebody who generally is, you know, let's do this on protocol before we unleash it. In this case, you think, you know, the balance shifts a little bit. Yeah, so I, I'm generally, yeah, yeah, I found myself often in the position of talking um, in the space of a person that I might disagree with in a different circumstance. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah, and actually, I think there's very interesting things that you can probably think about if we have time, we can talk about it, analogies to oncology. Because yeah. I, as I was thinking about my justification for why you might prescribe this or use it out of a trial, I thought couldn't the same someone say the same thing about cancer drugs? Yeah, right. Um, yeah. But in this case, yeah, the, the point I was making is that obviously we'd rather have um, a patient getting this if they're in a clinical trial. But there were two issues that made that difficult in this particular circumstance. The the first issue is that there were no clinical trials, so it's it's one thing to tell people. You should only use this drug if it's a clinical trial. We don't know if it works. Well, well, fine, but there were no clinical trials, and they're going to die in two weeks. So, you know, what are you going to do? Mm-hmm. So, th- that's one issue. The other issue is that I'm going to put it this way to be a little bit provocative: is that um, sometimes I would think through my mind, is it actually ethical to do a clinical trial if the result will come will not come back? till everyone else is dead or there's another better therapy. Mm, 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 so that's the way I was trying to think about mm, 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 evidence generation and clinical trials. If it's going to take three months to get an answer and in three months we're going to have remdesivir or we're going to have this or that, then, and most of the patients are dying in those three months, then, and, and there are no trials around, then, I felt like you couldn't really be that critical of physicians who are deciding to use it in patients in a hospital. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought that the, the evidence-based medicine discussion was very different in the case of a, play, a place where there are no trials and um, you can't necessarily wait um, for a trial because not only will your patients be dying, but a lot of the people who get the disease will die. Now, for, for example, um, we are now entering the, the part of the curve where there's fewer and fewer deaths in the U.S. It means there's still a lot of people who are going to die, right. unfortunately. Right. But a lot of them have already died. Right. Um, but now there were there were some people who very quickly, and especially the, the Minnesota trial, yes. I mean, kudos to them yeah, right. for, for instituting a trial so quickly, and kudos to the Europeans for doing the discovery trial right. um, for hydroxychloroquine, which will get an answer sooner. sooner. But otherwise... Some trials are just starting now of hydroxychloroquine. Right, you know, I saw and, that. Yeah, I saw that. A new yeah. trial opens. But but let me ask yeah, you this: so, the question I had for yeah. you was, you know, yeah. 
how do you decide which is the drug you give? Uh, that's one. Yeah. I mean, because like we had, we were getting data on Tossy and, you know, people were telling me Tossy is so good. Tocilizumab, hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. I look at some of the yeah. case series out of China and they have like the appendix yeah. of like what the people got. And it's like uh, they yeah. got, we were on Tamiflu and they were on uh, yeah. Zamoxy and they were on the Z-Pak yeah. and they're on, you know, all this stuff. So I guess that was, that, so yeah. that's my question for you. Like, what was it about well, the preclinical? Well, yeah. I mean, what do you do in the setting of a new disease that no one has ever seen before? Yeah. And, and you're trying to figure out what to give. And there are stories from other countries, anecdotes, stories yeah. about, about we found it very beneficial. Other countries are using it as their official protocol. Yeah. Um, and, and there are some really, really poorly done. And there was at least one one poorly done RCT out of China, a very small one yeah, right. that had for one of its outcomes that maybe there was an improvement in, in, in CAT scan. So, you know, you, you have to figure out. So, so that's a good question. You have to figure out what you're going to use. Yeah. So, so what do you do? And, and, and for me, it was, do you, do you say there's no evidence that there's no good evidence? So we can't use it until there's good evidence. Or do you say we're going to use the best evidence available? And at the time, the best evidence available is terrible anecdotes, and and the terrible anecdotes were over were were I think more positive than negative. So what do you do in that circumstance? I see, I see. So, so it was the anecdotes that kind of, I mean I see what you're saying, but I guess well, I guess anecdotes. Yeah. You know, you know, I started thinking a lot about how people say anecdotes are not data. No, but they are, but of course, they, if they're extremely they provocative. Yeah. Like for, yeah, yeah. They, six anecdotes but, is what put HIV on the map, right? Six anecdotes, right? Yes. Yeah. But so, so anecdotes are data. So yes. the plural of anecdotes, you know, this whole thing about the plural of anecdotes is not data. Actually, it is. It's terrible quality data. Yeah. Uh, evidence. It's terrible, terrible quality evidence, but it's evidence. So if you, if you have nothing else available to make a decision, do you use the evidence? Now, that's available. Now you can say it's unreliable. I don't believe it. And, and that's totally valid. You say, I, I hear these anecdotes. But I don't believe it. I'm going to wait. Or you can say, you know, there might be something. Now, ideally you're exactly right. But, and I, I remember that tweet that you sent is what we should say is, all right, let's use it, but let's be, let, let's do a study and figure out if it works um, while we're doing, while we're using the drug. And I think New York did that where they, they said they're going to use it, but they established a, an observational, prospective observational trial. Mm -hmm. yeah. But ultimately, what you would want is, is the ability to do a super fast trial to just say, you know, we're going to, we're going to take 300 patients, we're going to randomize it, and we're going to see what works. Um, the challenge, I think, really in with hydroxychloroquine is that, is that a trial was not necessary to get the drug. Yes. Because right. it exists. Yes. So, so you, you have an individual patient in front of you. Yeah, you know, you've heard this. You have an individual patient in front of you, and you're going to say, I can either give you this drug or I can enroll you in a trial, and there's a 50% chance you'll get this drug. Um, and, you know, I, you could leave it to patients to decide, but, but it's very different like a cancer clinical trial where the drug's not available unless you enroll in the trial. You know, here, here the drug is available. So, uh, but, but, yeah. So the lesson is we need to find faster ways to, 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 um, collect good, high quality evidence. Um, you know, so we, we're not in a situation like this again, that 
the other thing that's interesting, and, and since, like you said, I'm the guest, so I can talk as much as I sure. want. <laughs> yeah, yeah, go on. Yeah, go and on. you can cut me. No, 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 I'm not going to cut you. Way. Yeah, it's your, it's your, pl- the, a good host lets the guest have the floor. Yes, go on. You should change, every time you have a guest, you should change the name of the show so they can name it whatever they want. <laughs> you know, like plenary, <laughs> plenary session colon. Colon's opinions. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so, so the thing that's, the other thing that's interesting about evidence generation hydroxychloroquine is that, there's been a lot of laudatory talk about NIH about yeah. how, you know, but the NIH was, was, was really pushed forward a remdesivir trial. Yeah. Um, and yeah. partly because there's a company behind it that's going to make money. Of course. Yeah. Gilead, where, right. Why is, why is NIH starting a trial you know, now? Right. Of hydroxychloroquine. I mean, it started in a trial of inpatient hydroxychloroquine, I think a few weeks ago, but, but, you know, we knew this was coming. We knew hydroxychloroquine was what was everyone using. Why, why was there not a protocol in place in February, you know, in, in late February? I think that's been one issue that, that needs to be, uh, that, that when we look back, when we debrief, we need to figure out, could NIH have stood up trials of repurposed drugs sooner? So Should, the protocols course, yeah. were in place, the INDs are there if they're needed, the, the infrastructure is there, the contracts are done, you know, the, the informed consent is done so people can do the informed consent. Let's not have 50 different hydroxychloroquine trials. Let's have the one. We're going to get it done. And you know, that never happened. That never happened. I mean, never and, happened. you know, and, and to that point, it's also like NIH is also paying for the registration trial of Gilead's drug while Gilead is running a trial <laughs> that can't fail because there's no arm in that <laughs> trial that doesn't get the drug. Um, so I don't, you know, so that, that's bizarre to me. But I guess, well, you know, that's a, yeah. But I guess, I mean, like one way that I think maybe to harmonize this sort of line of thinking is, um, you know, maybe to just to say, like, what would a perfect world look like if we could imagine a perfect world? And then we can talk about the shitty world we live in. But the perfect world would be you get a hunt, you know, you have something you've never seen before. And, you know, you make a fair point because it's possible we're going to have these waves and waves and it's going to keep coming for, you know, whatever, two, three, yeah. five years forever. It's possible it's going to have one wave and you're never going to have it again. Um, but whatever, we don't know. Um, so you have this thing, you have a lot of uncertainty. Uh, in a perfect world, you get a hundred people pouring in the door. Maybe, you know, you, you're quick to do a study. So 20 of them, 40 of them, you can get on a randomized trial, randomize them. The rest of them, you know, maybe there will be some, um, you know, uh, so I guess I, I was wanted to clarify because it, so it's not sort of the, the endosomal sort of acidification that's moving you. It's the sort of anecdotal, it's the, the really sort of reports coming. So the rest of them, you got like 60 people. They're not trial eligible. You know, one of the ways we handle it in oncology is we're say. We're going to give the drug to four to, you know, the first 40 that walk in the door, but we're going to say if the response rate is over, you know, if, 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 if 90% of them don't require ventilation, that'll be like the indication to success. And if 25% of them or more require ventilation, this trial will be halted because we believe that to be sort of the baseline rate at which this disease progresses to ventilation, you know, something like that. Um, it's not perfect, you know, it's, but it's kind of like a stopping rule, a go, no go rule. Um, yeah. Well, I think that's really interesting. And I, I think that is a model that could have been applied. Yeah. I think there's a very interesting trial that, that Pitt, the university of Pittsburgh is involved. Um, and I, it, it, the, the trial acronym is REMAP, mm-hmm. um, but it's, it's a developed for pneumonia and it's this international consortium and they use various machine learning techniques to learn what, what treatments work sooner so that, so that if a, it's, it's an adaptive trial. So yeah. that if an arm is not working well, then people drop out of it quickly. So, so, 
and, and they're more likely to be enrolled in the therapies that work. So that, that's, a, that's, that's an actual trial, but that will get people to start a drug, a, an effective drug sooner, um, you know, versus what you're talking about is, is slightly different. Um, so, so the University of Pittsburgh and, and the folks that they work with started this trial, but it still took a long time to, to get started and, and they had to get funding. So the other way would be a registry, as you mentioned. We did have some knowledge about the rates of uh, the adverse outcomes with yeah. other countries. So yeah. we could do that. We could, yeah. we could say we know what the standard is for someone who presents. But we didn't do all those things. And, it, and it, what it requires is someone to organize that. Yes, right. Uh, and, yeah. You know, uh, because there's, I don't know how many thousand different hospitals, and this is all being done at different places. Yeah. So, I mean, you have no one organizing the effort. So. I guess um, along those lines, I mean, I think when when you talk about the book that needs to be written on all of this, I think probably like the central theme will be um, nobody, uh, nobody who was in the position that should have seized the control did early. And that led to failures of, you know, CDC banning individual hospitals from running their own test while they simultaneously failed to provide a test uh, that led to, you know, all the sort of broader public failures. And even in the drug space where there was nobody kind of taking control and harmonizing any clinical trials agenda. Um, I guess maybe that's the next thing that we could talk a little bit about is that you know, it's potentially possible that they have become so many sort of different studies that they all will sabotage one another to the point that all of them end up like the underpowered Lancet study. Right. Yeah, I um, I, I agree. So let me get back to yeah. this issue about it, it would have been great if early on there was a, um, a central voice about here are the trials we need to do. Let's organize them. Yeah. Now, this probably was happening at NIH. And they were trying to figure out who's going to run the trial and then this and that, and it takes time. You know, I don't know. What I do know from from what I've heard and read is that the director of the NIH had been involved with the pharmaceutical companies in lots of discussions on background about a clinical trial um, agenda for COVID. And I think this was released maybe two or three weeks ago, Um, but but apparently it was, it was all this conversation on background. So I don't know what was discussed in background about an agenda. Yeah. Um, I know that there was a conversation happening, but, um, but it sounds like it was a little bit too late. And I presume they've discussed this issue of what do you do when there's 10 different therapies and you're trying to enroll in an academic medical center and, right. and you can only have one. Right, right. It's going to be on one trial. What do you do? I don't know what conversation has gone on around that. It'd be interesting, actually, in retro to, to learn what happens retrospectively about that. Right. I I did I did um, and I think I tweeted this. I, I tweet as a way to help me remember what I <laughs> right. what I noticed. But <laughs> right. The NIH trial of yeah. hydro, um, hydroxychloroquine and azithro yeah. is recruiting in the same university, the same medical center, University of Washington, as the Gates-funded trial of hydroxychloroquine and azithro. Oh my gosh. Um, so. <laughs> Which is very interesting. So I don't know what that means. It looks like it's, from what I can tell on clinicaltrials.gov, it's two different units at the University of Washington, but I assume the patients are all going to the same place. Mm. Yeah. Um, you know, one, one thing that I had listened to recently is, um, and this is related to therapeutics, because, you know, I, you know, when, when COVID came out, somebody asked me, um, uh, 
you know, does hydroxychloroquine need an accelerated approval? And I told this person that uh, that's kind of a moot point because it can be used off-label for any purpose. You know, we have off-label prescribing. <laughs> um, uh, and so I said, you know, the way, I mean, I divide up all drugs are, you know, there are new molecular entities that are not on the U.S. market. And 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 there are certain standards by which those drugs, uh, you know, need to cross uh, before you can use them for any purpose. And then there are drugs that are approved for one purpose. They can use for whatever purpose you want. Um, and um, it is... Um, really easy for doctors to to do that. Um, one thing that sort of emerged early with COVID was the rate of thrombosis. And there were at least, yeah. th you know, three studies that I'm aware of where they said, you know, one was kind of a bad study because it turns out um, in a lot of Asian hospitals, rates of inpatient thrombosis are a little bit lower than Western hospitals and ergo prophylaxis policies are different. And there are some hospitals where there is no prophylaxis. Um, and in that setting, the rate of thrombosis was, you know, such and such a number, which people thought was a little higher than usual. Um, but, you know, of course, they're not being prophylaxed like they are in America. So who, what's to know? Then we got some data out of the Netherlands where they had a certain rate of thrombosis despite prophylaxis. There are some studies that have come out showing ICU thrombosis. I guess if I look at them all, I would say, you know, there's uncertainty, but if you put a gun to my head and said, you know, are you sure there's no higher rate of thrombosis? I say, look, I'm not sure. Maybe there is. There's a little bit higher rate possibly. You know, I, I, I say that I see that's a possibility. Um, so in this, there's this letter that came out last week or two weeks ago in Jack. And I'm going to at some point talk about on this podcast because Valentin Fuster is the physician in chief of Sinai, and he's also the editor in chief of Jack, and he's also the sort of the, the public face of this letter. And basically, there's a podcast attached to this research letter where he talks about his thinking, and I thought it was so fascinating. So, you know, he's he's the epicenter of the epicenter in Sinai and the epidemic. Um, there are all these patients coming in. They're having more clots than they believe to be normal. Um, and so somewhere along the way, they make sort of an executive decision. And it's basically that, you know, every single patient no matter what, um, or almost all patients are going to get full dose, uh, you know, pro, uh, full dose therapeutic anticoagulation. Um, yeah. You know, so they just pull that trigger and then they did it for 5,000 people. And then at the end of that wow. 5,000 people, he turned off the, then he says at the end of the podcast, um, this was the most provocative <laughs> part. You know, people asked me, Valentin, you know, will you join these international randomized trials to test anticoagulation? And he said, I told them, no, I don't know if I, if I should join the trial, I'm going to collect some data first. And my point was, but I mean, you collect 5,000 people data, what, what do you, who's left when you do the study? Okay. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah I, was, I, I was partly hoping you'd bring up anticoagulation, probably hoping you wouldn't, because I don't know <laughs> okay. the studies well, but, okay. but, but it's another, but it's a great example. Like, we have 50 years of data on hydroxychloroquine, and we know its risks. Um, and people were yelling about how it's, it, you know, to kill you, make you go blind. Here we have people putting on full dose anticoagulation, hospitalized sick people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that is hugely high risk. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but, but I think it's a similar situation in that the patients in front of them are sick. There, there's stories of clotting. Some people have used anticoagulation. So, you know, they have to make a decision about whether to use it or not. And the question is, at the time, was there a trial they could enroll those patients in New York? Um, you know, and, and I don't know, I probably not. Yeah. And I, so, yeah, what, but, yeah. Well, I guess I, I just say that, I mean, at some point in this podcast, Dr. Fuster admits that he was offered to make um, Sinai an enrollment site for such a trial. Oh, he, de he declined it in pursuit of his 5,000 person observational study. But yeah, but your, point, your point is well taken. Yeah. But, I see. Well, that's a different, that's a different story, but. But your point, but, <laughs> yeah, I mean, part of your point is that, um, uh, uh, the same person who might scoff at uh, hydroxychloroquine given off label 
is uh, if that same person is eager to give full dose Lovenox or in some people are given TPA. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think we have to at least have the sense to admit that TPA more dangerous, full dose anticoagulation more dangerous and hydroxychloroquine less dangerous. I mean, yeah. I, if we can't agree to that, then I, I wonder how, who's, who's practicing medicine at these. I, I agree. And you know, there were, I know you saw these stories about um a narrative about hero hero doctors yeah, using I, TPA. Oh yeah, I know, uh, you know, killed and, me. And I think I honestly think um, the situation would have been very different if all of a sudden the president had said, "Yeah, use TPA." And, yeah, use TPA. <laughs> then, be, then people would be up in arms, and we'd see hundreds of news stories about uh, you know about about the dangers of TPA. But it, it's. It is so. This is why I think back to to oncology because obviously this is your area. But yeah. but this is a situation where you have patients who are who, who some of them are very likely to die twenty to thirty percent in the next couple of weeks. Um, patients who are hospitalized with COVID um, or, or the next month, they're in front of you, and you know you you, you know how do you decide what what therapy to give them? Yeah. Um, and, and you don't have the luxury of a clinical trial happening at your site. You, you, you can't say, I know so-and-so is running a trial. I know NIH is running a trial. Like there's, there's no trial. Yeah. So, so I find, so it's been interesting. I, I, I found myself almost, it, it's almost like creeping towards the talk about right to try. You know? <laughs> and I know there was also, also the hydro, hydroxychloroquine discussion became also a litmus test for what you think about right to try and, and, and FDA approval. And, and there were thoughts that we, we can't have this emergency authorization because that's the end of the FDA. Um, but, but it was interesting to start thinking about this language about, well, the patient is in front of you. You don't know what will work. You have an option. Should you give it or not? Yeah, I guess, uh, I mean, how do, should the FDA be in the way? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in oncology, like how do we handle these questions? Because I do think they do come up as you note, and I guess I would say it might, and maybe you'll, see, I mean, just and me talking through, you might see that there are some, that you'll see some differences. Like one, of course, you know, when possible, you would enroll somebody in a study. Uh, and I guess I would say there's probably a 10 to one ratio of uncontrolled studies to enroll them into controlled studies in almost every single space in oncology. Um, when you don't have that, um, sort of the next thing that you often do is you almost always, and this is kind of sounds bizarre, but you almost always have sort of a published phase two of between 30 and 80 people you can find right. and and we have yep. a biomarker which is maybe a little bit different than this setting where and our biomarkers response rate or you know tumor shrinkage more than 30 percent and so you can tell somebody like look i don't have great data for you but i do know if i give you a topicide at the standard dose um that you know uh, maybe one in four people will be nauseous and you have some vomiting and you might you might your blood counts might go low you might lose your hair a little bit um but i do know that there's a sort of 30 percent chance or 20 percent chance that the tumors will shrink 30% or more. Um, and I tend to know that if I didn't give you a topicide, um, you know, we can pull the placebo arm of all the cancer trials ever done. And I can tell you there's only about a 2% chance a tumor will ever shrink. So, you know, this is, this is the best of it. And, and people make different decisions. I guess beyond that, there's another thing that's really popular these days where they take the cancer patient, then they sequence the whole genome, which is really costly. And then, you know, and then they find some targeted drug and then, but in those cases, they're, um, sometimes anecdote is what they're using, but often it's like just the pure preclinical, I know drug A hits target X and I know you have mutation in target X and, you know, I know target X is important in melanoma, but I also know you have myeloma, but you know, so ergo close yeah. enough, let's give it a shot. I think so. There's also that. And I think 
there there is a legitimate and rich debate around you know what's your style where do you draw the line and um and i don't think you know any one person can settle it but i do think to sort of your broader point here which is i mean i think that this it's so interesting which is that however you want to think about this question the worst thing in the world is if questions like this become i guess statements of political virtue yeah. if we conflate yes. the two we are just doomed i mean i've said this a couple yes. times that if if your views on reopening are are just 100% if democrats want to keep shelter in place and republicans want to reopen if democrats thinks hydroxychloroquine should fail but republicans want it to succeed we are it's over for what we're doing that is really poison yeah. and i fear that and what you're putting your finger on in a lot of your tweets is that it's getting that way. It's getting that way much more than people are letting on. It is. Yeah. And it's been a huge disappointment. And I think you're absolutely right. It's touched all the debates about how you deal with this pandemic. And it's touched the debates on how you feel about the leaders in the pandemic. Yeah. It's touched debates on how you view FDA, FDA action, everything. And that is the political climate. And, and, and that is something that, um, doesn't just doesn't just happen. You know, it's not like the weather atmosphere. I mean, you know, that's that's happened because of particular actions. I'm trying to be very vague. Yes, so, I know. So I don't yeah, get yeah, too right. <laughs> but, <laughs> right, but right. Yeah, and it's a huge disappointment because it's it, this was this is this is going to go down as as one of the biggest public health economic calamities. Yes, of um, our lives, you know, this, of our lives, of yeah. our li yeah. uh, certainly of our lives. Yeah. You know, maybe of the century, people are going to write books about yeah. it, like like they write books about the Spanish flu, and and you know we, we have we have all this great technology and medical knowledge, and yet we were just fighting about things because we because of culture wars or political leanings. I, I don't know, and um, you know, there's a whole there's probably also dissertation to write about the role of social media and all of this. Yeah, which is and, not always good. Um, I think it's not it's not no. been it's not been a net positive. No. Um, I, and, and, I, I will say, and because um, I know we don't have a lot of time, I, don't but, know, yeah. I think I, don't know I think vaccines. Yeah, I think the vaccine development though is is probably a bright spot. Okay, I good. Think. Yeah, I, I think it, it is. It is pretty amazing to think about that the entire world, at the same time, is trying to come up with a vaccine. Yeah. You know, it's it's not just one company. It is yeah. the entire world. China has a huge effort. That the Europeans have a huge effort. The U.S. There's all these different efforts in the U.S. It's very it's amazing to think about that that the entire world is engaged in in a singular focus on vaccine development. That's why, you know, I, I know all the so I'm not a vaccine expert. I know right. all the experts say 12 to 18 months, right. maybe more. I, I have this, maybe it's just my optimism. I feel like things are going to happen a lot faster. Yeah. I think never before in human history, in modern technology and drug development, has the entire world and every major company been focused, you know, on a singular mission, which is to come up with this vaccine. Yeah. And, you know, there's the, there, there's the early data, you know, the Moderna, another, yeah, I know. another press release, yeah, right. <laughs> um, leak, whatever classic today, COVID. but yeah, classic, yeah, COVID, yeah. classic COVID, but, but it, it is, um, you know, so I, that's, I think that's a bright spot and the government has been, has been putting a lot of money in it, has, has tried to organize the effort. And so I think that's a bright spot. I think, I think you're right. I mean, and, and, yeah. and, and if we get a vaccine by January, by February of next year, by December, by something like that, 
Um, yeah. I think it will be a, it will be a, a human triumph story. Um, a human triumph. A human triumph. Totally yeah. Agree. Like putting a yeah. man on the moon. Um, especially if yeah. it, if it's done in a way where, you know, you're getting a, at least as good as sort of a good um, flu vaccine year, that kind of efficacy yeah. doesn't have to be perfect, right. but at least that good, that's got, that's got something going for it. Um, and, and yeah, I, I guess, yeah, I guess, um, you know, I, I, the, la- the last thing I wanted to talk to you about was cost. But before we come to that, I just want to say one more thing, which is like, I mean, uh, the, the Santa Clara authors kind of s- have stepped in it a little bit and they're getting, you know, a lot of heat. And to be honest, by the time this airs, you know, there's going to be some new development. So I'm going to be out of date. But I really it yeah. really bothered me. It really bothered me that everyone was like, you know, uh, John Yonides is like uh, he's he's doing this because he's on the right. And I was like, you know, I, I don't know if he is on the right or not. I, but I really doubt that's why he's doing what he's doing. Um, yeah. And I think it's okay to say your study sucks. It's okay to say you made mistakes. It's okay to say retract your paper. I think that's all okay to say. But if you start saying that, you know, you have blood on your hands, you're pro-Trump, you want to kill people, right. you know, if you start getting to that level, I think it's it's not good for what we're trying to do, which is, you know, I think at the end of the day, um, the kind of question that you're really asking uh, it's, it's, it's two part question. It's a part ethical question, like uh, about this hydroxychloroquine in part, like what does one do ethically in these situations? And I think that's a good question, but it's also in part an empirical question, which is in general, in these sorts of situations, um, is it better sort of empirically in terms of sort of a expected value kind of economic calculus to, to try or to not, you know, and I think that has implications on accelerated approval and all these things. And I guess, it's important to remember that no matter what our feelings are, we are still scientists. And so we really have to ask those empirical questions and do that hard work. And and we cannot like make this about politics or uh, whether or not tr- Trump likes it or doesn't like it. Um, you know, yeah. Yeah, go yeah, ahead. And we, yeah, I agree. And it's always harder. It's always easier to say these things than, than when you're in the moment. Yeah. And I, you know, I've been in that, too, where you I mean. Yeah, it should always be. I, I think we want every possible idea out there, every for, for scientists to think about and policymakers to think about. Yeah, we do not want every idea out there published in a press release. Correct. You, right. You, right. You <laughs> right. To show that you can use TPA. Yeah. But what we want, we want, to, we want all, we want scientists and policymakers to have access to all those ideas. And so, in the same way, so let let's transition to cost. In the yeah, same cost, way yeah. that people are going to argue that we want a high cost because we want to encourage more development. Well, we, we also want a we also want a good reception to new ideas because we want anyone who has a good idea in the case of this pandemic to come forward and, and, and you know, we want those. And so we need to incentivize people to come in and say things that are maybe a little, um, that are out of the mainstream or unpopular um, with, with people in their party or unpopular with their peers. Yeah. Now, it's easy for me to say this, um, you know, we're all human, but that's what we should all strive for is an environment where everyone can, can provide their ideas and we, we tell them their data is terrible. Yeah, they're wrong, but, but they're but not bad glad, people. Right. They're yes. Not, but we're glad that they came yeah. up with that idea. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I never thought that within the span of like four years that I will be moving from like, you know, always stepping on toes on Twitter to the point of view where I'm like, this has gotten out of control. <laughs> I mean, like, I'm like, I, I'm like, what the, what has gotten on well, it's, here? It's gotten out of control yeah, it's, and it's not uh, all. And no. there's like a sea of like people who I don't know who the hell these people are. They have no profile. Fa- I mean, they might be Russian bots or troll. I don't know what yeah. they are, but they just fuel these mob mentality and this fire and everything is just so heated all the time and i you know i I made this joke um in my profile it says that i'm you know Uh, i saw that i saw that (laughs) which i liked i I thought it was very clever yeah Yeah. i was like you know i'm sorry you should explain it you should explain it for your listeners oh well i well i could explain it so i guess i guess i mean the joke is uh, you know as i put it in my profile sars cov uh sars cov2 experts since 2017 and of course, it's a two-part joke. One, this, the, 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 we didn't know anything about SARS-CoV in 2017. But the second part of the joke is that, you know, a lot of people are on Twitter acting as if they're experts about this virus. And they really didn't do anything about this virus a few weeks ago. And they weren't in <laughs> pandemics. You know, they're all kind of self-proclaimed experts. And I think some of that is yeah. motivated by there's nothing that builds more followers than kind of keeping a running account of SARS-CoV-2. And that might be motivating yes. some people. So, okay, so it's a, it's a two-part joke. And then this guy goes after me and he was like, you have declared you're an expert. You don't even know what year it started. And I was like, I guess humor is dead. And he was like, you call that funny? You are committing fraud. And I say, well, I guess it's a tough crowd. And then he says, you have 40,000 callers. This is deceitful fraud. And then I told him to take up a class action lawsuit. I was like, this guy, yeah. he's, he's giving me such a hard time about this. Um, anyway. Yeah. Um, so, I think, yeah, yeah I, I think um, it, it's all good to be able to step back and think about these things because I think it is true about the right way to approach things that you, that you disagree with. Um, it's hard for, for all of us to do that. But I, the thing about bots, yeah, that's a separate conversation. Yeah. But in, in I've had... Um, you know, I've tweeted a lot about hydroxychloroquine and I am, there are definitely bots. There are definitely accounts that, that sole purpose is to rile people up. And, um, you know, someone will eventually do a study about this, but they exist because I, you know, I see them, I see what they're tweeting. They're all very similar in their, um, in their profiles it's, it's very interesting. So hopefully someone will do a story about misinformation and hydroxychloroquine. I think it's another example of where someone has acted upon the, the strife within the U.S. about a politically hot issue and, and you know, pulled fuel on the fire. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't doubt it. I think you're onto something. Yeah. And I've I've had a few interactions where I think this something fishy going on here. Um, and yeah. and this is an election year, and this is a this is there's there's more yeah. at stake. Um, but anyway, let's talk about the price thing. I think here's the things I want to lay out for you on the price issue is, um, you know, you're. A, uh, you're thoughtful in everything pharmaceutical, but especially on issues of, you know, I think who put the blood, sweat and tears into products and who should be reaping the reward and how do we think about those things you're really good on and and you're not um, – a, a Bernie Sanders socialist? No, you're not. You're not a. I'm just joking. You're not a socialist. You're, Bernie's not a socialist. Either. You know, you're not. You're not somebody who thinks there should be no profit in the profit in this space. You think it should be fair and just profits, and they should be distributed justly. Um, and I'm reading so many articles on all the sort of sides of the issue on what is the fair price of a vaccine? What is the fair price of remdesivir? And I guess we got to balance so many things, which is like a vaccine is 
is obviously much, much better the more people get it in their arm. Um, a, 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 a pill is much, much better the, the more people who can take it, who need to take it. Um, uh, and yet um, having strong incentives is much, much better for the next problem that comes along. So how do you balance all these things? Um, and, and also who's paid for the trials and who did the research? Yeah, I think all, all of these issues come to play. And um, I think the same disagreements we had are going to happen again and again. And I don't know what, I don't know what the right answer is in the end. It'll be in the end. The bottom line is always the same. We need to reward companies when they give us something of value, Mm -hmm. but we're going to disagree how much we need to reward them. And, Mm -hmm. And that's what the entire disagreement is about. And it's going to be the same with the vaccines. We do not want companies to lose money with a vaccine, right? We want them to be rewarded for putting in this and, and not doing other things, but how much do they need to be rewarded? And, and the answer to that question is that we want them to be rewarded enough so that the next time this happens, that they keep developing drugs. And the bottom line is no one knows what that level is. So we're just going to argue, you know, and, and we're never going to come to an answer. The a couple points I'll make. One is that there have been a comp- couple companies that have said, we are not going to make a profit on this vaccine or drug for COVID. Yeah. I mean, they're saying that. Yeah. So I don't think you can say the only way we're going to get a cure is by offering huge sums of money. Right. At the same time, the companies are saying, yeah, we're, we're going to do gonna... it and we don't want a profit. Right. Yeah. So I think it's obvious that they don't need huge sums of money. Yes. Um, for this particular condition. Yes. Yes. Now, yes. Uh, the other thing is that there are rewards that are not profit, yes. that, that are not financial incentives, and yeah. we're discounting those. Yeah. You know, if, if a company is going to create a vaccine, yeah. it is going to get so much Positive attention. Press. Yeah, right. It is going to get open door to the, to the, to the White House. Yeah. It is going to get whatever it wants. Yeah. There are other benefits beyond price. So, so I think that's the second thing. The third thing, and let me just say. No, 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 go on. It's the great. third thing is yeah. just... It, it, um, absolutely, the U.S. is putting in a ton of money. The yeah. government is putting in a ton of money. Yeah, the, the, the government has given five hundred million dollars to one company for its vaccine. Yeah, the one that is ahead of things. So, th- this is this is an accentuated example of of the government promoting drug development. When yeah, we talk about vaccines. So those three things, I think, make things very different. The government really has a huge role in incentivizing vaccines. They're manufacturing. Um, the, the um, there are other rewards aside from money and profit, and um, companies have said that they're going to develop some of these things without a profit. So, I, I guess so, so. This is a little bit of a different situation where we normally say we need a huge amount of, of incentive. Right. Now, they, they now the, the flip side though, and I'll just put the flip side is that th- this is also a disease that the entire world is facing at the same time. Yes. So if if that the company can make no profit, but but still charge the U.S. a lot more than we think, yeah. because it's going to offer it to everybody else for pennies. Yeah, and so that's a situation we're going to have to accept if we think that's okay. Right. Um, so that's the way I would summarize these discussions. Um, that that it's going to be the same kind of wheel turning, but it's a little different than other situations, and um, probably the price is going to be higher than we want. And higher than it needs to be, just because there's nothing really holding it back. I see, and yeah. um, I think that is 
that's a, that's a very nice way to frame it. I guess one thought that I always wonder is, um, do you think like when it comes to vaccine, the final studies that lead to approval or widespread use, when it comes to all the drugs, not just remdesivir, but all the drugs that will someday, you know, be used here, um, do you think there are going to be some companies that slip by by running trials where we're still going to be kind of shrugging our shoulders saying, I'm not so sure this, I don't know if this drug works or not. Um, I don't know if this vaccine works or not. Or do you think the final vaccine trials are going to be, you know, because in, in, of all the ways to expedite a vaccine, to me, the, the, the toughest way, the hardest way to expedite it is that last step, which is what's your randomized efficacy trial look like? Um, yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts there about, about you think there'll be any corners cut or you think we're going to try to do it the right way. Well, I mean, uh, his, I, I guess history would tell us that there are, there are very few trials that are hundred percent definitive. Oh, right. You know, there's always some uncertainty and I think we're just going to have to live with it. We're not going to be able to wait five years right. for, for the, for the other two trials to confirm. Right. So there's going to be uncertainty. I think, um, what, what you see, what I think we've seen with, the NIH trial and with the other trials is that is that there are going to be endpoints around clinical improvement. So uh, I think not for the vaccine trials, but yes, for the, but other, for the drugs, other drugs. Yeah, and that yeah, be... there'll be the so-called yeah, surrogate outcomes that we always talk about. So we'll be in situations where it might have a small impact on surrogate outcomes, doesn't impact mortality. Right. Well, what do we do with that? And it's not the first time that's happened. And then how do you price it? Yeah, it's a drug for COVID, but is it really the kind we want? So um, I think. Companies that are that want to get their drug approved are, are going to do what's required to get it approved, which in the circumstance of COVID is probably less than you would want mm -hmm. um, in terms of definitive data. So, yes, I think we're going to deal with uncertainty. I guess my last thought on this price issue is... Um, yeah. You know, for me, I mean, I guess the hardest thing about the price discussions is, um, I, I mean, you're an unusual person because you're, I mean, by training a physician, but you happen to kind of be a, a very good sort of policy person and, and with a lot of knowledge of economics and those sorts of issues. Um, but in the domain of sort of drug pricing, I, you know, I feel as if, if you one were to sort of make a pile of all the people who are sort of prominent voices, it's going to be you know, more economists and that sort, finance people, economists, industry analysts kind of people. And I guess I would say that the other thing that's unusual about you is, um, you know, you're, you're really sort of divorced or walled off from direct, you know, working directly being paid by the industry or that sort of thing. And I think for many of the players in this space, there's a huge sort of business on the side um, for many people to do really, you know, lucrative consulting for many of these companies. And I guess my question is, I mean, you know, um, I, I wonder if it kind of tilts the whole tabletop a little bit, is that there aren't that many sort of voices or groups that really strive to be independent um, and non-conflicted. And there's so many groups that directly or indirectly are really benefiting from the largesse of sort of the most profitable, one of the most profitable sectors of the economy. And and when the tabletop is so tilted, it's hard to have sort of a, a middle-of-the-road conversation about drug pricing when I feel like, you know, we're descending every year after year into crazy unsustainable prices, and 
there's a huge vocal group saying that that's no biggie, no big deal. Um, and, you know, where we expect things to go or, um, you know, we can fix it, but yeah, we'll get around to that. Or they have a bunch of solutions that don't really, you know, cut as deep as we need to cut. So I guess, I don't know, do you ever feel frustrated by the general, or I mean, do you, one, I guess you might disagree with my characterization of the tabletop, um, but if you agree with the characterization of the tabletop, do you feel frustrated by it or, um, or ever think how you might sort of balance it out a little bit? Yeah, I think um, yeah, there's a lot in there's a lot in that question. I will say that there are definitely. I'm trying to phrase this the right yeah. way. There, there there are definitely um, players behind the scenes that influence or, or that um, in some way influence what people say about drug pricing, and it happens on both sides. I think of the issue. But I think part of the issue is that when it happens on the side of people who say drug prices should be high and stay high, it's often invisible. So um, that's that's part of the challenge. Like there's a there's a Sunshine Act for physicians. There's no Sunshine Act for other people right. talking about drugs. Right. And th there is a huge industry of um th that involves um and and i and again to be provocative i often it's 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 sort of like um money laundering for ideas yeah, okay yeah now you're t that's what i think yeah go on yeah. <laughs> well i mean it is it actually is. it yeah. is money laundering yeah. for, for ideas and what happens is that and and now this happens on both sides of the issue this happens with political issues um you know, as an aside, for example, sometimes policy ideas will come up and they'll come up through foundations. Yes. But you know, those foundations are associated with certain industries. Right. Well, that exact same thing happens with pharmaceutical pricing. Yeah. Um, there are ideas that seem to percolate up through the academic or policy chain or think tanks. Um, but oftentimes they are um, the same ideas that, that oftentimes those are being pushed by certain folks who have financial stake in it. Now, sometimes it's not, sometimes it's just people, um, um, have the same ideas, but there, there is no doubt that there is this kind of money laundering for ideas where when it comes out of an academic institution or a think tank, it takes the, it, it takes the mark of academic thought where, um, if, which which then cleans the idea right. from where when it came from. Right now, that certainly happens. It doesn't happen all the time. There are lots of people who talk about high prices and then the price should stay high, not because they're laundering ideas for someone else, but because they believe that and that, that's right. totally fine. So, but but I think that does exist and it can be frustrating. Um, the other thing that is frustrating is that, like any idea, the the extremes get all the attention. Yeah. So. The middle of the road, the, the frustrating thing about middle of the road is that it's it's hard to get traction. I mean, um, you know, the, the loud voices, the op-eds, they want exciting things. They don't want a boring, well, you know, we do need companies to make money, but probably not as much money. And that's basically the bottom line. Right, right, right. So yeah. you, either, you either have to say that the companies are making huge profits, they're killing people, this, that, or you have to say that. The only reason why humans are alive is because of the largesse of the pharmaceutical <laughs> right. companies. You know? right, there's, right. there's nothing, right. something in the middle. So, and, uh, the, and not only they gave you life, they gave you a job too. So be thankful for it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, but I, but 
you know, the, the, what, I, what I've now, having written about this and talked about this enough, is that this, this issue about costs will never be answered because the, 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 what, we need to, uh, what we need to know is how much incentive does a company need to make a drug. Right. And that is unknowable. Right. Um, and so we can just argue using the data that we have because, and here's a good example, we will never do a randomized trial yeah. of uh, yeah. let's lower drug prices, see yeah. what happens, yeah. And, yeah. Um, and then we'll know our answer. So yeah. otherwise we use the best available evidence we have yeah. and we interpret evidence differently. Yeah. I mean, but, that's, yeah. yeah. I guess I think, you know, it's so interesting that, I mean, to me about the point you're kind of making, which is that, you know, to some degree, I guess I feel blessed that I'm in a field like medicine where not for every question, but for many questions, you know, because of the nature of the question, should um, uh, a middle-aged person take chlorthalidone? The nature of the question is the kind of question that, you know, there's a potential benefit. At best, it's a modest effect size. It's not going to be a parachute, obviously, and and we can do randomized control trials. But, you know, for many walks of life, which is like, you know, what do you do when a once-in-a-lifetime global pandemic hits? Or what do you do when uh, a foreign dignitary is assassinated uh, on foreign soil? Um, global political strategy thing, you know, that those are fields of life where decisions have to be made and they're never going to be no, they're never going to be no studies. They're not going to be, you know, this, and, and, and those kinds of questions I think are, um, you know, the kinds of questions where to kind of some of the points you were saying earlier, you really want to foster allowing people to sort of bring ideas to the table, um, and talk it through, um, minimize, I think sort of, uh, systemic biases, such as maybe if half the people at the table are being paid by the foreign power, you wouldn't like that. It's sort of the summit discussing it, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and, and, and that might be true for some of these very large kind of macro issues of, um, you know, how do you approve drugs and how do you price drugs? You're not, you can't randomize nations, the cluster randomized trial of 200 nations. You know, there's some questions you just can't randomize. And, and, and to your point, you, you know, you're going to have to make decisions in the absence of that. And, and maybe the best you can do is try to make the process as, I don't know, clean as possible. Well, well yeah. And, and we all know that humans tend to, they use shortcuts to make decisions. Yeah, yeah. So when when there's not a good way to make decisions, they're going to listen to the person with the blue check mark with the most followers, right. um, or, or they're they're going to listen to the person with the fancy title from Harvard. Um, you know, and they're not going to listen to other people. And so I I think one of the things you can do around every aspect, like you're talking about, when when it's not clear what the answer is, is help people figure out or or have a process to come to what will what what is the truth rather than you know, eminence-based medicine or eminence-based policy is yeah. how do we come to what the truth is? And, and, and the truth is almost always like somewhere in the middle of what people are saying, um, I think. But that's me. That's me. I'm the guy in the middle, always on the middle. So, <laughs> well, actually, um, yeah. you know, uh, uh, I, I, how could I put it? I guess I would say, um, you know, I was where I was and I think the older I get, I get moved in the middle, you know, it's not because maybe, oh, I, yes. maybe I'm the same person, but life moved around me and, 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 <laughs> and, and not only am I in the middle, I'm the, the, the width has gotten a lot wider, a lot wider over time. And I'm, and, and that frightens me a little bit, but that's so, what happens. Yeah. That's what people tell you. It happens with, with, with age and wisdom. Yeah. <laughs> I wonder yeah. what it is, you know, um, uh, it, it, uh, what's the old saying? If youth knew if age could or something like like that. But, um, uh, well, I want to thank you for coming on this podcast because I mean, I think, you know, uh, so this is kind of why I like to do a podcast. Um, uh, you're sort of like the exemplar of it, which is that, you know, a lot of the thinking on these issues is, um, 
uh, it's not 180 characters. It's really kind of, you, you know, you, you've really kind of talked us through a lot of nuanced positions on all of these topics. And so I really appreciate that. And I think that's a nice thing about this forum that we can talk for over an hour and kind of get a sense of those kind of, of thinking. And, you know, I'm a big fan of your take on all these issues. I, I think you're, you you did a good job trying to keep people honest in both directions. And that's important. Um, and I guess, you know, I'd love to have you back uh, when your next paper comes out. Um, <laughs> uh, because I, I know it's, I laughing because it's going to, it's probably going to stir the pot and I, I'd love to have you back to talk, talk listeners through, um, you know, w- what you found and, and what it means. So thanks, Dr. Jalad. Hey, yeah. hey, I'd love to come back. And I have to say, it's nice to be able to talk through all these issues and this nuance, um, because I'd love to write papers about the, all these, but, um, it's much nicer just to be able to talk and get feedback as you go. So. I will be back on the next time you ask me. Okay, wonderful. All right, thanks so much for coming on. You've been listening to Season 2 of Plenary Session. I've been your host, Dr. Vinay Prasad. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Review this podcast at the iTunes Store. Supporters of this podcast can back us on Patreon. Patreon allows you to support artists you like, and Patreon backers will get access to all of the slides discussed on Plenary Session. Got questions for the show? Tweet to us at plenary underscore session or email us at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. We love fielding listener questions. Thanks for listening.